This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at Kevin Kautzman and at Brad Kelly. All right, we're back with another fun-filled, very dark, very moody, very southern episode of Art of Darkness. And I'm Kevin Kautzman, joined by my usual partner in crime, Brad Kelly. However, today uh, we have a, a very special guest, a fellow writer named Aaron Gwynn. Brad, I'll let you introduce uh, Aaron. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we realized um, late, a little late in life, Kevin and I realized that we don't know everything. So we thought we would. You can't drop this on me during well, the mic's hot. But <laughs> existential crisis all of a sudden. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, so um, we wanted, to, uh, we wanted to, to bring in our, our good friend, Aaron Gwynn. Um, Aaron is an award-winning novelist, uh, the author of, among other things, uh, The World Beneath, Wind's War. Uh, most recently, I believe it's most recently, All God's Children. Um, which I read and is a certified banger uh, and also won the Oklahoma Book Award, I believe, this year or last year um, and has received rave reviews all around. Um, his work has also appeared in Esquire and, and a number of other journals, collections and anthologies. Um, this guy's out there doing the work for real. Um, he also uh, currently teaches uh, creative writing at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. Um, so yeah, and he knows more about our subject than, than probably Kevin and I put together. So, um, we thought we'd bring him in and, and, and have a chat about, you know, one of my favorite authors. Um, so yeah. Well, Excited to be here guys. Yeah. Thanks for being here, Aaron. Yeah. Thanks man. Very absolutely. Special... Absolutely. Yeah. Who are we going to talk about today? I believe William it's Faulkner. William Faulkner. Oh, yeah. I, I'm hearing Faulkner. Yeah. Okay. All right. So Kevin, Kevin. What do you know, the classic AOD question, what do you know about William Faulkner? Oh, doggy. Whoa, Nelly. Uh, great American novelist. Uh, personally, read quite a lot of Faulkner okay. uh, around 2008, 2009. After I had spent a little bit of time in England, I wanted to immerse myself in the American greats. Uh, Southern quintessential Southern author, I think Mississippi, if I'm not mistaken. Correct, yeah. I associate him with Oxford, Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, and to be frank, much beyond that, uh, beyond his outsized influence on American letters, yeah. I don't know a damned thing. Oh, well, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I mean, that's all, that's all true. <laughs> he... Uh, you said great. You said great American author, and and I um I, I wanted to ask great or greatest. Uh, you mm. know he's he's in the running. That's for sure. Mm. Some of that boils down to taste, obviously. But um, yeah, he did it about as good as any anybody. Um, 
So let me give just quick bio, just put in place and time so we can kind of start filling in. And, you know, if we were doing this in true Faulknerian sense, we would, uh, we would just wander all over time and space for the next couple of hours and, and sort of at the end sort of just fall down. Uh, <laughs> but he's born um, William uh, Cuth- is How do you pronounce this? Cuthbert? Cuthbert? Anybody know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say Cuthbert, William Cuthbert Faulkner, uh, born without a U in the name, by the way. Uh, uh, September 25th, 1897, dies uh, July the 6th of 1962. Um, You know, lived most of that life in Mississippi, um, despite uh, many, many, many wanderings, a lot more wanderings of the world than I actually anticipated. Um, Yeah. So, um, and stop me anywhere I get some stuff wrong, but I'm just going to lay out some, some, some bio information. I mean, one of the cool things, so Faulkner is known for, uh, it took him a little while to get there, but settling into creating this literary world, this fictional county, and Aaron probably knows how to pronounce it because I tried my best and I can't pronounce it. What is the name of the county? Yachnapatotha. There we go. <laughs> that, this is why Aaron is here, among <laughs> other reasons. I came to pronounce <laughs> yeah, made-up right. things. <laughs> well, I literally, I listened to it pronounced several times earlier today and like practiced it. And I was like, I, I can't get it. It's, it's, it's tricky. So fictional county loosely based on, on it's Laf, I think Lafayette County where Oxford is. Um, so, you know, he did, he did that thing that a lot of us writers do where you fictionalize stuff enough that you can get away with it. Um, That's right. And then you also don't have to hew too closely to the truth when it comes to facts, right? Um, so <clears throat> because he was so sort of entrenched in the soil, we got to talk about his, pat, his, his sort of lineage a little bit because he comes from quite interesting stock starting with his great-grandfather, who they called the Old Colonel. And the old that is Colonel, always great. That, oh, it's, that, that's, that's good fantastic. for anybody. Right. Yeah. As long as yeah. it doesn't that's involve fantastic. fried chicken. Right, right, right. Shape. Probably, yeah, yeah. They might have based, uh, the Colonel Sanders might have been based on this guy. Mm. He was, um, among other things, <laughs> he was owner of what might have been the first rail, a partial owner of what might have been the first railroad in Mississippi. Right. So, ah, I know. think it's worth remembering too, as we sort of generally place ourselves into the 19th century, the railroad was the gee whiz, whiz bang internet oh, yeah. of the time. That yeah. was, whoa, we're, we're going to, we're moving across country in days rather than weeks. Yeah. It, it would have been big like, deal. Uh, it would have been like starting the first internet service provider in your, Right. Amazing. State or something mm, yep. like that. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Yeah. People um, are hosting websites with spinning skulls right, and flames right, and right, right. things very hardcore. Yeah. 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 Mm. We're taking the train to Mississippi. Right. 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 So the old Colonel was, was in on that, that early business. He was also a, a civil war officer. I'm going to kind of put that in quotes. Uh, a real, uh, uh, he was a, what they, what was referred to in the biography as a minor slave owner which I don't know if mm. that really gets you off mm. the hook exactly. Mm. But. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I don't know about that. That <laughs> yeah. phrase, yeah. what does that really mean? <laughs> yeah. Know. That's Minor. like, fr- mm. yeah. I don't think it's mm. kind of an all or nothing. It's like a, yeah, you either, you either yeah. do or you don't. Right. It's like the it's phrase like casual le- sex. Yeah. Yeah. Like being a little pregnant, <laughs> a little pregnant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Yeah. There so, it okay. isn't. 
Mm, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So anyway, I guess the point is he didn't own like a plantation ah. with hundreds of, you know, or whatever, but still. Okay. Um, uh, he, uh, he was also a novelist. He had a fairly popular novel that he wrote. This is, this is what Faulkner's great grandfather, the old Colonel called the white rose of Memphis. And it was like a romantic kind of ah. escapade kind of thing. Right? Ah. <laughs> that's a, that's a lovely title. <laughs> it is a lovely that's title. That's so 19th century. Oh too. yeah. Like absolutely. it's a Victorian, and right. his conception of himself, the right. white rose of Memphis. I'm a literary <laughs> figure now. Right, exactly. <laughs> I was waiting for the accent to come yeah. out. Yeah. 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 It comes. Yeah. And you know, but this is this is some crazy old time. So there's there's a lot of violence in Faulkner's family history. So when uh, W. C. the old Colonel was young, he um, he how did this go? So somebody tried to kill him. So he was in a group called the Knights of Temperance, which was like a jokingly apparently was like a drinking club, but they were called <laughs> the Knights of Temperance. <laughs> <laughs> and there was some guy and this is when he was like in his 20s there was some guy that he they didn't let in and there was an argument over it it's like, um it's like i'm the chastity of screwing right, right. <laughs> like, it's very funny i like this yeah right sure. yeah and so and so um this guy ends up trying to shoot uh the old colonel pulls oh, out a gun at the club yeah, um I, I think outside the club or something like that yeah. in the streets of ripley Miss, mississippi pulls out the gun pulls the trigger twice, doesn't go off. Old Colonel stabs the guy to death. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> to death? <laughs> yeah. So yes. the Colonel the Colonel literally well, he didn't dodge a bullet, but yeah. the yeah. the machine was on the side of the 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 white rose of Memphis. Well, had to bring had it maybe had to bring William Faulkner into existence, you know? Right? Well, yeah. Sometimes Perhaps the the, there's something some gremlin in the gun that was literary, yeah. 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 This is an important lesson for us, right? Like a yeah. knife never jams, never misfeeds, never misfires. It's true. And if you're going to shoot somebody who carries a big old knife, Shoot him from a few steps away, you know. Get get, get away. Get <laughs> right. far enough. The knife right. is not. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. got some range with it, you know. There's a bit of like a slapstick quality to that too. It's you pull the trigger a couple of times, it doesn't go off. The right. other guy pretty much has license to stab you to death. Yeah, oh, well, man. Right, and the old colonel got off. Like it wasn't like you know. It was like, well, yeah, <laughs> right. he tried to shoot you. What what are you supposed to do? It must right? have been probably got a probably got a medal. Probably, <laughs> probably. Well, the crazy thing is there would eventually be a statue of the old colonel in Ripley, Mississippi, an eight foot tall bronze statue. People love this guy so much. He was just such a crazy character. I said he was a Civil War officer and I put it in quotation marks because he did, he he kind of joined the official Confederate army, but he really just like started up his old own thing and just like joined a battle, basically. That's what a colonel is. Right. Though. Is it right? Oh, okay. It's like a, a colonel is. I, I think historically, and I'm not a military historian whatsoever, but my yeah. understanding is a colonel is something like a field general who has yeah. the ability to make executive decisions on the shifting right. battlefield. Yeah, I, yeah. My point was, he just I think went around and like found some good old boys, and we're like, let's go. You know. All right. <laughs> the weird thing about this is, uh, uh, a lot of these guys, when the war broke out, yeah. the CSA was so loosely affiliated right. that someone like Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was mm -hmm. a slave trader from this region, um, never served in the military, didn't know anything about warfare. He put an ad in the Memphis paper that says, if you want to whip up on the Yankees, come with me. 
And he outfitted a group of cavalry out of his own pocket and declared himself colonel and became Nathan Bedford Forrest. You know, that's crazy. You know, as much as I'm not necessarily a fan of Nathan Bedford Forrest, that's a pretty ball. Like, that's a pretty, pretty cool move. Just it's in really interesting. It's really, it's a really interesting thing. And yeah. he be- Shelby Foote said that the Civil War produced two geniuses, Abraham Lincoln and Nathan Bedford Forrest. Wow. And he meant in terms of his tactical sure. prowess, his pure talent for warfare. That's interesting. But also yeah. no real training in it. Just uh, None. enthusiasm. Yeah. Enthusiasm. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Don't underestimate how annoying Yankees can be. People really, back in the day, they really didn't like them and (laughs) vice versa. So I know that history sort of paints a picture where obviously it's good versus evil and we have the sort of, you know, K-12 understanding of of it. But boy, these Southerners really didn't like those Yankees trying to tell them what to do. And it continues until today. It continues today. And it goes both ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It cuts both ways, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, uh, old Colonel, I don't want to dwell on too much because we actually got to get to the actual subject, but I think some of this paints a picture of the world that Faulkner came from, right? Um, uh, the old Colonel eventually is murdered, um, just a few years before William Faulkner is born. He's murdered by a business rival in the town square of Ripley, Tennessee, or I'm sorry, Ripley, Mississippi. Um, so just that's, you know, so that's one thing going on. He's got this great grandfather named the old Colonel. Now his grandfather was called the young colonel and every generation down from the old colonel is like a slightly paler shade of the old colonel right the next guy down he's a little bit of he's kind of a smaller time business guy he does like railroad stuff he's buying raw land he's buying little bits and pieces of businesses here and there Um, and he's a little bit of a wild man but he's nothing like the old colonel right he didn't drum up a posse to go fight in a war or any of this um uh by the time you get to um Faulkner's dad Murray um, it's an even paler shade this is where you know well I should back up the young colonel uh, who's Faulkner's grandfather did exhibit one of the Faulkner traits which was a strong penchant for alcohol Um, he was yeah he was kind of a soul he was a sort of a solo guy a bit of an alcohol uh, kind of a raging alcoholic actually Um, and and but he still had the, the entrepreneurial spirit of the, old, of the old colonel. By the time we get to Murray, again, we're dealing with a guy who's a bit of an alcoholic, but, but generally considered kind of a dullard by people who knew him. Not necessarily bright, not necessarily interesting. No really uh, joie de vivre, you know? He was sort of, um, he was waiting for his father, Faulkner's grandfather, to give him a piece of the railroad. The grandfather basically believed that Murray was incapable of running a business of that magnitude. Um, and so Murray, Murray just kind of bounced around, just kind of got the jobs that he could. Um, we will get more. Uh, we'll definitely talk more about that because his role and especially the university of Ole Miss plays a pretty important factor in Faulkner's life. Mm. Yeah. So um, I want to get to the books a little bit here and I don't want to stop Aaron from jumping in. Uh, 
Um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited to have Aaron here. I also want to yeah. say that we're changing something on Art of Darkness now, where yeah. our After Dark episodes for the Patreon subscribers, uh, it's patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. We're yeah. going to save an especially dark story, an especially quirky anecdote story yes. for the After Dark subscribers. So go. definitely go to Patreon yeah, if you want. About if you like that. how we do this, if you want to hear a little extra zhuzh, uh, mm-hmm. do that, support the show. Um, but yeah, maybe maybe now's a good time to pause and sort of Aaron, where are you at with Faulkner? How much how much of this did you know? Is this all in line with what what you're aware of? Oh, this is great. I haven't delved into um, Faulkner's life before he was born and yeah. didn't know about the old Colonel or the young Colonel. Okay. Um, but I was immediately vibing with how those two things become a presence in Absalom, Absalom, mm-hmm. uh, Sound of the Fury with the Compson family. There's a, there's old Compson or General Compson, who everyone yep. refers to. And then the father is a, is a paler shade. And then yeah. you get to Quentin. So that it's yeah, interesting no, to see what, how that Yeah, when in. I came across this, I was like, oh my God, it's Absalom. Absalom, Absalom's like Faulkner's life, basically. Right. Which had, had not dawned on me. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah, so very, very interesting. I mean, I figured it was stories he'd kind of heard. I didn't realize it was in his lineage. One thing to note this this streak of sort of violence and, and craziness too. Um, Murray, his father, tried to kill, Faulkner's father tried to kill the murderer of the old colonel um, and ended up getting his fingers shot off. So there was some kind of scuffle in the town square about, you know, you killed the old colonel and, you know shots rang out essentially so there was you know there was a fair amount of violence and tension and 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 draw and sort of operatic drama going on in in the family tree for sure um so talk kind of briefly about his childhood uh he's the oldest william faulkner again he doesn't have the u in the name yet which i find really interesting it's just f-a-l-k-n-e-r um Known to be kind of a known to be a pretty smart kid, um, his mother um, was very, and we see this in a lot of our subjects. His mother was very much like pushed books on him, and, and very much cultivated the, the 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 creative and imaginative side of him. Um, as he was getting older, it was pretty clear he didn't really have the same interests as uh, as other boys. He wasn't really into sports, you know. He was probably a bit of an introvert. Not, he definitely was an introvert. Um, but he also started as he moved into high school, he didn't really care much for the rules. He basically failed out of English in high school and had to repeat at least the 11th grade, if not one other grade. So it was not, was not a uh, star pupil by any means. Um, in high school, he meets a woman who will be a big part of his ultimate story. Um, he meets Estelle Oldham, who is from another... Um, and one thing I should mention, as by the time Faulkner's born, when old Colonel's alive, the Faulkner name is a big name. This is a, a prestige name, basically. Ah, but by okay. the time William's born, it's, it's clear that they've been taken down several notches to the point that when he meets Estelle, the Faulkner name's sort of not good enough for the Oldhams. Huh. So... Mm. Sort of an interesting uh, note. When they met, though, they both felt like they were sort of fated to be married. Um, but she gets proposed to by somebody else um, when 
that she's quite young and ends up marrying this guy and and is sort of briefly out of William Faulkner's life, which was which was difficult for William to deal with because hmm. you know he was in love with her and he felt like he this was the woman that I'm going to marry, right? Yeah. So in this time he's writing, he's got um, poetry mostly early on. Um, he's big into Henry Fielding, Joseph Conrad, Balzac. Uh, is that how you say that? How do you say Balzac? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's okay. the what I've like, always heard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all right. It sounds, I thought it, was, it, sounds cr it sounds rude, right? But it, it I think that's it. That's it. <laughs> it does. Yeah, I thought I thought so too. I was like, I don't know how else you would pronounce that. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, and he was also very into Shakespeare and Swinburne. A lot of his early poetry, Faulkner's early poetry, is basically plagiarizing Swinburne. Apparently, oh. <laughs> it's like almost identical. You know, it's one of those one of those swap out a couple words here and there, right? So, Joyce did that too. By the way, he was really uh, Swinburne was really important for writers oh, really? for Borner. Yeah, 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 yeah. This makes me want to go. I I don't think I've read a, a, a verse of Swinburne before. I might have. To, I've just read a little. Just yeah. a little bit. Yeah, yeah I can't say I know him that well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The name vaguely rings a bell, but yeah. Um, he, uh, Faulkner, meets a guy in Oxford named Philip Stone, who's a couple years older than him, when uh, I believe in, when Faulkner's in high school still. And Philip Stone is like convinced that Faulkner has great literary talent. And this friendship is ends up being fairly significant. Um, so now here's the thing so Faulkner graduates high school. He's kind of shiftless. He doesn't care about rules. He doesn't really care about having like a job. You know, he's he's uh, he worked in his grandfather's bank for a little while, but but apparently all he really got from that was he drank. Uh, he that's when he started to drink was when he worked in his grandfather's bank because his grandfather kept a bottle of booze in the desk drawer, basically. Oh uh, boy, yeah. yeah. So so most of the time after high school, after high school, what he does is writes a little poetry, plays a lot of golf drinks a bunch of whiskey, and then kind of has like a do-nothing job at his grandfather's bank. He's like borderline neat, not an employment he's education. Yeah, all right. He's okay. like right at that. He's got, the only reason he's got a job is because his, grand, his grandpa owns a bank, right? Um, yeah, so um, in 1918, um, he, uh, he moves up with Phil Stone. His friend Phil Stone um, is up near Yale. He moves up there and he's a filing clerk for the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. And this is when he starts spelling the name with the U. Because as soon as Faulkner leaves home, he starts to kind of tell stories about who he is and where he's been and what he's done. He's a little bit of a fabricator and it actually gets kind of hilarious in a little bit. Um, uh, now, 1918, he's 21. Kevin, what is a his major historical event going on in 1918? Hey, we know we're in the, uh, the Great War. Yes. The war to end all wars, yeah. they thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. And, and, the, and the flu. The, the, the terrible the flu? flu that was, uh, the right. Spanish that's, flu that was going around. That's, that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's some, some ways it feels like the war that began all wars a little bit. But mm, uh, mm. so Faulkner can't get into the American military because he's too short. This is the, officially the story. I don't know if that's actually true. It sounds kind of made up to me, but apparently that's the deal. <laughs> <laughs> apparently he was too short so he's working uh so when he's working up at winchester he hears that there might be a possibility that he can get into the english english royal flying corps right so 
he <laughs> so okay i I'm, i can't even repeat let me let me read like a little bit from this biography this great biography one matchless time a life of william faulkner okay this is a, it's a fantastic book it's well referenced um so this is faulkner this is what he does to uh uh get into the English Royal Flying Corps, who was training folks up in Toronto at the time. <clears throat> in late May, Faulkner's brother Jack enlisted in the Marine Corps, uh, stirring the sense of rivalry always latent between these two. One Canadian officer whom Faulkner and Stone met at a party suggested that they should attempt to join the newly organized Royal Air Force, which had begun recruiting pilots for one of 20, uh, 20 air squadrons being formed in Canada. Of course, American citizens were not eligible but Faulkner saw no reason he and Stone could not pass themselves off as Englishmen. They began to practice speaking with an English accent under the tutelage of a British friend. <laughs> oh Elaborate and amusing deceptions were per, uh, perpetuated, including the creation of a fake portfolio of letters from an invented English clergyman. Here he shows his writerliness. The Reverend Mr. Edward Twimberley Thorndike, who wrote that uh -huh. Stone and Faulkner were good, God-fearing young Christian, Christian gentlemen. Why, now, hello! <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Hello. Yeah. I'm doing the yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. So ah. yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Phil Stone, <laughs> Phil Stone kind of thought this was all just a joke, but like sure. Faulkner went through with it. Faulkner went to the embassy. Um, <laughs> Faulkner got an appointment to go up to Toronto. Went to Toronto and carried a fake English accent the entire time, enrolling in the British military. Oh, that's wild. And, you know, I mean, paperwork was a lot easier to fudge back then. You know, you just kind of say, and they, also they needed bodies. So who's going to, you know, who's going to run a background check and make sure, is he really English? You know? Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. I so am I an Englishman, I'll tell you. Right. <laughs> I really wonder how the accent sounded. How would you even amazing. know at the time what it even sounded like? It's not like you had. Great point. I mean, I suppose you would have maybe some radio at that point. Uh, but we're, yeah. Yeah. That's very curious. Yeah, being from, I mean, they, they apparently they had a British friend or something, but, you know, down in Oxford, I doubt that he was running into anybody who spoke with an English accent. It's amazing. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Funny. I can't believe he, 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 like, it's kind of an amazing feat to, like, to, to, to develop the accent and then go there and then to, like, actually carry it out. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's very, it's, it's very sort of theatrical and, and flamboyant and fun. Super method, man. Right. It is it's like Indeed. completely method. Right. 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 And so, but here's the thing. He starts making stuff up in his letters to home. He writes home. He's like, well, there's two types, you know, writing home to Miss Maud, his mom. He's like, well, there's two types of uh, pilots you can become here. You can become a officer pilot or a something else pilot. And of course, he wrote that he was going to become an officer pilot, right? It was always, this is going to happen. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And, you know, meanwhile, he's just doing the most basic grunt, basic training kind of stuff, which is, you know, fine. But he wanted to, he wanted to fabricate, obviously. Um, the, now, he was a little late to the game and the, the Great War ended before his training did. So he never actually like went anywhere. He just kind of did part of his training in um, in Toronto. Nevertheless, when he returned to Oxford, he returned wearing full British officer regalia because he wanted everybody to think he was a British <laughs> officer. All right, <laughs> and he walked with a limp that he maintained for months, if not years. 
Okay. All right. <laughs> it's a little eccentric. And if he didn't already, like, if he didn't know you, apparently at this time, like, if he didn't know you, if he would, you ran into him in New Orleans or something, right, in the years after, he would tell wild tales about his role in, in the Great War as a pilot. And everybody, but everybody back home knew that he'd never, he never went anywhere. He's just telling completely fabricated stories. Well, so, so we have a natural storyteller, but not even yeah, just on absolutely. the page. Mm, right, yeah. right, right. And, you well, know, this is what happens to... This yeah. is what happens to fiction writers when they're not working. It really does. Right? Oh, it really God. does. Oh, my God. Well, right. don't even get me started on theater people who aren't in the theater. <laughs> yeah. When they yeah, start yeah, podcasts. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but tell me a little more. What is it like for, for authors of fiction who don't have the outlet, Aaron? Oh, you, my yeah. gosh. It's not even the, like, I mean, Brad can speak to this as yeah. well. It's not yeah. even don't not having the outlet you can have the outlet but just be done with something done with the project and you're like oh good grief yeah i could tell you stories but like i then i start thinking well you know has the statute of limitations on that expect <laughs> it's i mean it, it's you really if you can sell the thing on the page you know you're you've been selling yourself other things and selling right. other people things right and it, and I think there's something about it and every writer has their own experience with this. And you can tell me what you think. I want to hear what yeah. Brad thinks, but I think maybe there is a pleasure in just entertaining. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes you, some, it's, it's common for young men to tell self aggrandizing lies. It's like, okay, that's, it's embarrassing, but yeah. uh, you know, a lot of yeah. us can look back and be like, Oh my gosh. Right. Yeah, okay. Sure. But there's an element with someone like Faulkner that it's, it's self aggrandizing, but he's also just interested in entertaining people. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's probably right? some truth to that. Yeah. It's like, yeah, wouldn't this be, and, and there's something about returning home. Like, well, what would make this all a cooler story is if I came home and I had a war injury and I had a, I was a British officer now. Like, what's what's a Mississippi boy doing being a British officer, right? There's yeah. like a there's a you're, you're making you're you're introducing yeah some novelty and some interest. Now it's also yeah. self serving at the same time. You know, he didn't come right. back and say, well, I'm a criminal and I escaped from prison or something. But like, right. but yeah. There's a quality of uh, parlor theatrics in this right. period, too, that I think is maybe a little lost to us now. Everybody could play piano. Everybody was, not everybody was eccentric, but I mean, people were, things were a little more immediate then, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. People yeah. talk about this and how difficult it is now to reinvent ourselves uh, in this country. <laughs> how uh, hitherto uh, you would have someone like Bob Dylan, uh, Robert Zimmerman, grow up in Mankato, Minnesota, or wherever it was, and... Uh, sort of flunk out or abandon a year at the, at the U here, uh, steal some records from people <laughs> right. today. Now, where would he end up? He'd end up working at a Culver's somewhere. Uh, right. or he'd have so right. much social media, um, presence by the time he was 20 that, you know, he'd be fixed in an identity back then. And, 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 and obviously this is a century before even, or half a century yeah. before you just got on the road. Right. And, and right. you could you just kind go of to a, yeah, let's go to a town where nobody knows you. Who was going to check? Right, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think there's also something like, you know, in the writing of fiction, that there's this old saw about, you know, writing fiction, it's, it's lies that tell the greater truth in some way, right? Yeah. And not that Faulkner's telling the greater truth, but he's, it, there might be something about like, 
this is this is the story that I want to be true f- to value to value myself in my own eyes. Like this is the thing mm. that this this is the narrative that makes sense for this heroic vision I have about myself in a way. Right. Right. Yeah. Hmm. So. Um, and what the culture wanted too, at and the what time. the culture wanted, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, and it's rivalry with his brother, and you know he was probably feeling pretty bad about that. He hadn't hadn't done well in height. I mean, this is the other thing; he's not Nobel Prize winning William Faulkner when he's doing this. Right. He's a guy from Mississippi who's kind of shiftless, didn't really do anything in high school. His family used to be something, but it isn't anymore. He doesn't right. seem to have any particular talents other than his one friend thinks he's a good writer. Well, okay, you got one friend who thinks you're a great writer. I mean, that's cool, but like, you know, right. so, you know, he's taking this one moment and trying to turn it into more than it is, you know. An uh, underachieving loner. Right. With <laughs> an underachieving loner genius. Right. With exceptional world-class talent, right. no connections, yeah. uh, no accomplishments, right. and no education. Aaron, right. we're talking about Faulkner here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Wait, hold on a second. Um, so, yeah, so it, it's funny. And it's in the newspaper. Um, the one thing it's, that's really funny, because there's a few, like, clips from, uh, like, his local newspaper from things that sort of happen. And he does, when he gets back, they, they basically say he was a British officer. So it's actually in like the paper of record for Oxford that he returned from the war, in a, you know, just, just kind of hilarious. Um, he goes to Old Miss after this. Now, I don't think he actually even graduated high school, um, but because he was quote unquote a veteran, he was able to go to <laughs> Old Miss as a special student. Okay. Amazing. <laughs> um, he, while there, um, he took on a really kind of unusual persona. He liked to dress really well, and this would kind of come and go throughout his life, but at this time, he liked to dress to the nines. Um, but he, and he was very pretentious and kind of smug to people, but he barely did any assignments. He barely showed up to class. He really, really was a, a neat of some, of some order. Uh, yeah, dandy. It, yeah, there's a bit of a, a foppishness here. Um, Brad seems to have, uh, have frozen. We'll see if he comes back. Um, yeah, this is this is just fascinating. I don't know if he's writing at this point. I mean, it sounds like maybe he was writing some early poetry. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. there's all of the stuff that ends up in um, the Marble Fawn collection, um, and a lot of these guys, quote veterans uh, in his case of the First World War are uh, writing these sketches that aren't quite fiction and aren't quite poetry. Um, and you see that from Hemingway. Uh, this, this is the kind of stuff that Stein is uh, mentoring people into writing. Oh, right. Yeah, Gertrude yeah, yeah. Stein. Yeah, yeah. yeah. These little so vignettes and things. Yeah, it's very much, very much. These, these, they're these uh, pieces that are collected uh, I think they're called New Orleans sketches. I have a collection huh. of them. Um, okay. I'm not sure if they were published in his lifetime even, but everything his hand touched is, is of course, now published. Hmm. Yeah, I think Brad's doing a great job uh, kind of bringing us into the world, this story of going to try to join the Royal Air Force in Canada. I never would have anticipated that at all. It's crazy. Um, so crazy. 
I'm pretty excited uh, to hear about, you know, what happens when he really begins to, uh, to kick off the, the writing career. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so in the, in the meantime, while we wait for Brad, why don't, why don't you tell us uh, where can people find you in your writing, uh, Aaron? We're glad to have uh, you. You're the first yeah, guest we're really having on to do one of these. And we wanted to bring you on because Faulkner's a passion of yours. And yeah. Absolutely. No, I'm honored. Um, uh, the latest book is All God's Children. Um, get it at whatever bookstore uh, you go to. Order it through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Pals, however, Books A Million. However you get your books, um, Kindle or um, uh, physical copy. Um, so I did have a website, but I'm really bad at all of that stuff. So probably the best way to get to know me is through my writing. Well, and I'm, uh, we're pals and I'm a little bit ashamed yeah, yeah. to say I haven't read the novel. Um, that's all right. That's, yeah. I, I want it's to. not compulsory. I want to. Uh, I mean, if you had to summarize the novel or pitch it uh, to people who don't know what it's about, maybe now's a good time to do that. Yeah, so All God's Children is the story of um, an escaped enslaved woman from Virginia and a man who comes to Texas in the 1820s to seek his fortune from Kentucky, who's an outsider in a different kind of way, and their lives are braided together. So it's um, uh, Texas and the colonial and then the republic, the revolution and the republic days, and then uh, the war with Mexico. So the 1820s through the 1840s and, you know, slavery in frontier Texas and um, the chaos and struggle and, um, uh, you know, moments of freedom and moments of imprisoned cruelty. So like all the big stuff that America throws at you from the heartland. Mm, right. And in your background, you're from Oklahoma. I'm originally from Oklahoma, from a little county, Seminole County, grew up on a cattle ranch there. Hmm. A cattle ranch? I didn't know that. I yeah. Think you might yeah. have maybe told me once last year, but yeah, tell me a little more yeah, about that. Yeah, so yeah. we had uh, show cattle and we had beef cattle and uh, we never made any money at it, but <laughs> by, my grandfather's a cowboy from Texas and right. his his idea, he was a pipeliner, a welder, and so he would... Uh, pipeline and get enough money and then put it into cattle and then uh, we would start to go broke and then he would have to go out sell some cattle go back to pipelining until we could buy more cattle hmm. and yeah it's sort of Faulknerian now that I think about it itself it's like you know his it's his idea of some sort of cowboy gentry that oh you know if you're if you can if you have assets you should put them in livestock somehow yeah, right. A different, different age. What's that saying they have in Texas? All hat, no cattle. Mm-hmm. So this is a guy who... We were all cattle, no hat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, yeah. I feel you. No hat. Yep, I feel you. No hat. That's so, that's so fascinating. And, and in, your, in your background, when did you know you were going to be a writer? Was there a moment okay, where you said... so this mm-hmm. is... Here's the bridge right here. I, uh, I fell in love with literature in my late teens. I like Faulkner, didn't do well in high school at all, didn't really pay attention. But I started off at a little junior college and, um, and a professor from uh, the Mississippi Delta, from Mississippi, who was a big Faulkner fan. Uh, I had him for the first class I ever um, took and he uh, read my first uh, comp paper and he said, one day you're going to earn a fair living with a pen. Mm-hmm. And I was like, uh, do what now? 
Um, yeah, and so beautiful. he started, he's, yeah, he's a great guy. Tremendous man. Robert Hill, Robert Radcliffe Hill, shout out to Robert. He um, started me on the journey and I became really interested in literature and just fell completely in love. Went to do a literature master's after I finished my undergraduate at OSU, Oklahoma State. And while I was studying for my master's comprehensives, I started reading Faulkner one summer. And I realized, good grief, man. I, I felt like I didn't know you could write about rural people in a Shakespearean way. Yeah. yeah. Right? And, and right. I knew rural people. That had, been, uh, that had been my life up to that point. And... I felt like I could do this. Not that I was a Faulkner or had his level of talent, but I felt like I could tell stories about rural folks uh, in a way similar to Faulkner that, that didn't uh, ridicule them, that didn't make fun of them, that didn't belittle them, mm. that didn't talk down to them. I saw that their lives are uh, tragic and brilliant and joyful and comedic and all these things. I, I guess because I came from them, I saw them as humans as opposed to, uh, you know, the butt of some joke, um, which I yeah. think is something that rural America is really fed up with. Um, always Absolutely. being the butt of a joke. Right? Yeah, for sure. I, I completely relate to that having grown up in North Dakota, although uh, I've always sort of been um, driven toward, I guess, the cities personally. Mm -hmm. I, it's, it's, it would take a long time to sort of explain my relationship to it all. But uh, yeah, no, the way that um, uh, the South and, and rural and Midwestern America is treated uh, in, in literature is um, wanting. And so, yeah. you know, yeah, I think that's smart to... Um, to sort of, yeah, be motivated toward that. Did you, was your first uh, foray into, into letters successful or did you have some uh, novels well, that ended oh, up in the golly. closet? <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing, right? Yeah. All I know is, is I started reading Faulkner that summer and that summer I read As I Lay Dying, Sound in the Fury, Absalom, Absalom, Light in August and Go Down Moses. And I was just a swim in it. And I thought like, okay, I don't know if I, if I can do this, but I can't sit on the bleachers and watch. Like I have to try to play even if I'm ejected from the game. Yeah. Right. That was the feeling. And it was Faulkner who lit me up because I saw like, okay, here's the level this can be done at. Right. Like mm -hmm. you can take rural people, rural subjects and, and create Shakespearean tragedy uh, credibly out of their lives. Um, and I hadn't seen that until I read Faulkner yeah. uh, and I was and literature, which I love, but it always seemed like, okay, literature is something that happens somewhere else. It's, it's like growing out, growing up in the Midwest or in the South or the West. I mean, you, Oh, civilization and culture. That's what happens in New York. That's what happens in San Francisco. That's what's sure. happening somewhere else. Right. Yep. You yep. never think, Oh, wow. It's right here. So, um, Faulkner showed that to me for the first time and then introduced me to a body of literature, uh, you know, Flannery O'Connor and Robert Penn Warren and, you know, all of these Southern writers. I think uh, Toni Morrison is very much in that vein. I mean, I think Morrison would say that sort of Faulkner, you know, breathed life into her as well mm, um, and, yeah. and, you know, gave her uh, a view into what could be done in American letters. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's a nice interlude as we allowed Brad to reconnect here. Brad, um, 
uh, Aaron was simply telling me about his background as a writer and uh, what inspired him and Faulkner being kind of central to that. Do you want to pick up where you were, where you left off? Yeah, I, I caught just the end of that as I was getting myself sorted here. And that's, that was beautiful. And I'm glad you made the Toni Morrison reference too, because mm. I think she gets, um, not that she gets overlooked because I, I you know, she's a great writer and, and, mm-hmm. and, and gets attention and deser- deservedly so. But I don't think, I think people often don't include her in, in that. I mean, if you read Beloved, Beloved right. feels like William Faulkner in a lot of ways and not in a derivative way, but like, no, like, I mean, yeah, there's a reason why when Oprah, uh, Oprah taught a summer of Faulkner in her book club, which I thought, oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Right. And they even like vintage wisely sold a box set of like nice. sound in the fury as I lay dying in light in August. Nice. And I thought, you know, people rip on Oprah and Oprah's a billionaire, but like she's getting people to read real ass books. Right. Like, right. and true. difficult books too, yeah. right? And so yeah. she came to talking about Fugner because of her love of Morrison. And Morrison would constantly say, uh, you know, well, how huge Faulkner was for her and her own development as a writer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of, and this is the, another interesting thing too, and why you can't necessarily just pin Faulkner down as a, and we'll get to that. We're going to get to the biography, but we, this is good because I, 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 I had not realized the extent of his influence until mm. reading the biography. I realized I've, I've learned that Camus loved him and Sartre mm. and that whole set loved him. Oh, that doesn't right. surprise me at all. Yeah. The South American set, like Borges loved him. Um, mm-hmm. The other South American writer who won the Nobel, I'm blanking on his name, Mario. Uh, I don't know. Marquez probably did, I imagine. Um, but, you know, so he would, I, I hadn't realized how, how geogra- geographically that influence had spread and how much the, he'd meant to so many different people. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, <laughs> so this is a good sub, this is why this guy is such a good subject. I mean, we're kind of telling all of the story, the story of all of 20th century literature a little bit when you mm-hmm. talk to Faulkner. That's right. Um, yeah. So um, we were talking about Old Miss. I'm not going to spend much more time there. One thing I did want to mention is his dad through family connections, Faulkner's dad was appointed to the secretary of Old Miss a job he was completely unqualified for, <laughs> but which would end up helping out Faulkner um, in, in a couple of different ways. Um, so Faulkner, after in the third semester, Faulkner drops out. He just doesn't really care about college. Um, he'd had a couple poems and things published in the, 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 the school's paper or maybe even the school's literary journal. Um, and uh, 1921, he decides he's going to go live in New York for a while. Uh, he had a friend who told him he could get him a job as a clerk in the Doubleday bookstore. Um, which hey, was like so, big... so Faulkner went to New York? Yeah, yeah. When he was, uh, he would have been 24 or oh, so. Oh, man. The yeah. lure of that city. Uh, that <laughs> gets city everybody. gets everybody. I, I, seven years of my life. I don't want them yeah. back. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, yeah. Maybe... Yeah. Maybe I take a year and a half back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. wasn't all great. No, um, right, right. Yeah. Right. But he, uh, uh, yeah, so he goes, New York never did, he, New York was never good for him. Um, and uh, he took this job and he wasn't there very long. Um, he got fired. Um, eventually, somebody, and his report on why he got fired was like some confusion over the change. 
or something like that was why he got fired. Most likely, my guess, based on reading the description, he was borrowing books from the bookstore. And I've got a feeling that he, you know, he that forgot sounds, to bring one back. Yeah, that sounds more like it. That sounds more like it. Oh, was he picking books? Was yeah, he, he was definitely, he quote unquote, borrowing books from the bookstore. I was yeah. talking about Bob Dylan and the, yeah. the Dylan story. Yep. Uh, and so, yeah, similar, uh, not, to, not to derail, but yeah, Bob yeah. Yeah. very famously stole a big crate of records from some guy. And it's really funny. The guy was angry at the time, but then yeah. in, in hindsight, he's like, he, Bob needed those records more than I did. Well, well, yeah, this is the thing. I mean, <laughs> Faulkner's famous for the quote, uh, owed to a Grecian urn is worth any number of old, of dead old ladies, right? Like he, he, his attitude is like, well, this book's here and I need to read it. So I'm going to read it. The world is a library if you look <laughs> yes. at it from the right angle. There's a saying too, you never borrow a book. You assume if you've, yeah. if you've uh, uh, lent the book out, you never oh, lend yeah. a book. If you've, if, I assume it's gone. As soon as I hand the book to somebody else, I, I assume it's attitude. never coming back. Yeah. That's yeah. my attitude about it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. If I want it, if I want my copy, I'll just buy that person a copy of it. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, uh, he comes, so he ends up coming back to Oxford. He always comes, he always comes back to Oxford, no matter, basically, basically no matter what, he always comes back to Oxford. Um, his father, um, gets him a job as the postmaster of, <laughs> of Ole Miss. And Amazing. he, according to his friend, Phil Stone, this, this friend of his who is an early supporter, um, he made, quote, the damnedest postmaster the world has ever seen. Now, this was not an accolade. Faulkner barely even did the job. So there were complaint after complaint after complaint about mail not getting delivered, mail getting to the wrong place, getting delivered super late. There were stories about Easter hams rotting in the post office because uh, he didn't deliver them. He constantly, he had, a little, he had a little office in the back of the building, so he would close himself off in there. He would read all the students' magazines that came in via subscription, you know, the Saturday Evening Post and the Atlantic Monthly and all of that. He was just taking advantage left and right and barely doing any work whatsoever um they say just to interrupt real quick yeah no for sure man postmaster no piece of mail went unread that came through so apparently he was (laughs) going through correspondence oh i mean it's such a faulknerian thing to do right yeah yeah and he's yeah go ahead well what a good what a good if he's reading literally reading people's letters i mean okay you shouldn't do that probably (laughs) however if you were going to write a, one of the greatest bodies of literature of all time about a specific location, what Golly. better resource to have than everybody's letters? You know, I mean, maybe we should let the NSA off the hook, right? Maybe they're, <laughs> yeah, they're all, they're fans of literature, right? They're, they're all, fans of literature. <laughs> the NSA is just trying to write the great American novel. Yeah. 40 years from now, we'll have an AOD episode on somebody who is right now an NSA agent who is just <laughs> it, amazing. It's going to read like Philip K. Dick uh, had a child <laughs> with, um, I'm trying to think of, uh, of who else would be Borges and right. Yeah. Just this completely insane novel. Thomas Pynchon. Yeah. Uh, right, yeah. right, 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 right. Um, so, yeah, so this, you know who this, this reminds me of, if I may, Brad, I'm going to interject yeah, go here. Uh, Carnegie, I believe it was Carnegie was a telegraph operator. Oh, wow. So he was at the nexus of a lot of communication uh, for, for years, if I'm not mistaken, okay, which yeah. all went through his brain 
And right. of course, later he would put all the pieces together and become fabulously you know, wealthy. I didn't understand when I was a younger person what the big deal was with, for example, like the internet. Like I, I knew it was something, but I really did not understand that information yeah. is the new oil. And I think we all know that now, right? Information is power. So clearly Faulkner was tapping into things here. He was- That's yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's also true of Vanderbilt. When he was mm-hmm. a kid and he was ferrying people, he had his own schooner and he was ferrying people from one side of the river to the other. He, be- mm-hmm. he was, again, at a nexus of transportation communication. I mean, we're talking about internet, trains, and all this stuff. Um, right. Yeah. And it's especially when that information- yeah. Yeah. Especially when that information is so hard to get your hands on. It's not that everybody's got it like now, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're a special case in a way. Yeah. Right. That's pretty, that's pretty interesting. Um, one other thing he was doing around this time um, as a postmaster, he was either basically reading slash writing in the back of the post office, or he was pl- drinking, playing golf, and he liked to tear around the countryside in his Model T, which he had painted yellow and modified for speed. So, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> so, so it's just it's just great stuff. I want to read the letter he was written by his boss when he got fired. Real quick, oh, this it's is not, great. It's not long, but it's it's pretty great. Um, so he he was there for about three years. Um, <clears throat> um and yeah, this is from uh, Mark Webster, the guy who 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 was his boss, um, and wrote the official charges. Um. Here, here's the letter that the, let's see, there's the official charges are neglects, official duties, indifferent to interests of patrons, mistreatment of the mail. Uh, you are neglectful of your duties and that you are a habitual reader of books and magazines and seem re- reluctant to cease reading long enough to wait on the patrons that you have a book being printed at the present time the greater part of which was written while on duty at the post office, that some of the patrons will not trust you to forward their mail because of your past carelessness, and these patrons have their neighbors forward same for them while away on their vacations. The letter included names of specific patrons, blah, blah, blah. You will please advise me in writing within five days from this date, stating whether the charges are true in part or wholly so, and show cause, if any, why you should not be removed. Hey, they gave him a second chance, huh? They gave him a second chance. Hey, can you write your way out of this one, (laughs) buddy? Uh, That's the most chivalrous dismissal letter I've ever heard in my life. How (laughs) chivalrous is that? I mean, he almost called him, sir. Sir, you can get me calls why you should not be held in contempt of being ungentlemanly. Well, he he is a veteran. So oh, that's true. That's yeah, true. treat him with some more hero. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's here's what Faulkner said about um, when he left. He said in a letter, "I reckon I'll be at the beck and call of folks with money all my life, but thank mm-hmm. God I won't ever again have to be at the beck and call of every son of a bitch who's got two cents to buy a stamp." Amazing, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> that that's it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I think I think we have a show title there. He said, uh, "I think I think we call this uh, uh, Faulkner's Two Cents." <laughs> there <Yes>. you go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Good one. Yeah. So, so he's uh, 
so I think it's around 1925 when he gets out of the post, post office. So, you know, he's not, he's not a spry young chicken anymore. You know, he's getting to be in his late twenties. Um, by the time he gets fired from the post office, his, his brother basically calls him a disgrace to the family. Um, cause you know, he's gotten fired from the only thing resembling an actual job he's ever had. Um, and, and he got fired, not for, you know, a mistake here or there, but like, from a working man standpoint, like pure degeneracy, right? Just like not doing the job at all. Well, and I think too, it's <laughs> worth remembering at the time, what I, I didn't recall the, I can't recall the line, but there's something about his reading. Yeah. It, it didn't have the same quality that it has now uh, hmm. reading. You could read for pleasure back then. And that would be considered certainly not masculine per se, and also pretty degenerate. It'd be like if somebody was on their phone all day now at work, uh, it's not like uh, back then everybody would go, oh, he's bettering himself through literature or through reading. It's like, no, he's, he's, he's not serving the customers right, right. and he's being allowed. Yeah. Yeah. Right, 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 right. No, absolutely. Um, he, uh, so after the post office, he, start, he starts uh, spending a lot of time in New Orleans. Um, and this is where he starts to get some stuff published. He gets, um, he gets uh, like, he's working, he's, he's getting like newspaper assignments, like journalism, and then some kind of short of in, sketches of interest. And he's making something like, I think I did the math, he was making $25 a week or so on these little assignments. And he's, hmm. which is, you know, translates to about 400 bucks today. So, you know, he's not making much of anything, but he's kind of, he's living with friends and that sort of thing. And, and in general, uh, partying a lot. <laughs> so, um, but the one thing that did start to happen in this time is he was able to make some money writing, which is encouraging. And then not later, not long later, he met Sherwood Anderson, who, you know, I'm sure that fo that name rings a bell to, to folks. Um, Sherwood Anderson in 1920s was a big deal. It was a, it was an important guy to know. And he was known for, um, being very, uh, being, you know, kind of cultivating relationships with young writers and, and helping them along. He had a relationship with Hemingway as well, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is in New Orleans. This is in New Orleans. Correct. Um, and circle, what year are we? I'm trying to this anchor is myself. like 1925 and, and, and a little after. I just yeah. can't even imagine being in New Orleans in 1925. Right? What that must have been like. Right. Unreal. Yeah, I mean, apparently they had a pretty good time. I mean, he started Oof. to know a lot of the other young kind of intellectual folks and, and people in the, not the intellectual in the, in, the, in the fancy sense, but, you know, smart young people who were doing cool stuff kind of sense, I guess. My you favorite the, people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know what the interesting thing is? Uh, like, around this time is when Hemingway, Elliot, Pound, Joyce... Uh, I mean, good grief, Murderer's mm -hmm. Row of uh, uh, yeah. Fitzgerald are in Paris, yes. but it is, Faulkner is as good or better yeah. than any of those folks, but it is inconceivable to think of Faulkner doing the Paris thing with those other writers, right? He is, yeah. he is the misfit's misfit in some way. Like he would never yeah. go to Paris and pal around with with the crew, right? Yeah, no. Yeah, you're right. No. That uh, on the list of things that I knew about him, I think I could have said I know he wasn't part of that circle. I just didn't yeah. think about it. You're right, and yeah. it shows in the writing. His writing That's is right. so uh, distinct. 
Yeah, it yeah really that's a great is. point, Aaron. Yeah. yeah. Now he did he did make his way to Paris sometime in the late twenties, um, but it was all over by then. Hemingway had gone home, and Fitzgerald had gone home, and um, he did manage to see. He sort of saw Joyce in a cafe, um, <laughs> but was was too afraid to go talk to him. So that's as close as close to that scene as he got was seeing. Did Joyce anyone from ever the room. really see Joyce spread? <laughs> <laughs> Well, he certainly never saw yeah, anyone. Never <laughs> this is this is very writerly. This that yeah, moment yeah, yeah, was. Yeah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. God! Yeah. All right. Well. Yeah. 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 That's fun. Three writers <laughs> talk about writers on a podcast. Right, <laughs> man. Writing. Yeah, writers. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, go on, Brad. So yeah, so he he gone to he he so he did go to Europe, and while he was in Europe. Uh, he basically his first novel, Soldier's Pay, he had sent off to a publisher and then and then left for Europe. He'd managed to save some money. He got some money from the young colonel and money he'd saved from writing stories and whatnot. And he managed to he managed to be able to book um, a trip to Europe. Um, he got word while he was in Europe that Soldier's Pay would be published. So that was his that was his first novel. Um, he got the modern equivalent of $3,000 for it. <laughs> so uh, not a ton of money, but hey, it's a publication and, and um, that's super encouraging. Um, it got some decent reviews in the New, like the New York Times. So it wasn't completely overlooked, um, uh, though it didn't, you know, again, didn't bring him a ton of money or fame or anything like that. I don't know if you've ever, have you read that one, Aaron? I haven't read it. I haven't yeah. read his first two, which uh, Soldiers Pay and Mosquitoes, I haven't yeah. read. Those are the ones I've been warned away from, but I really ought to read them, actually. It would be, it would be interesting just for the, to see the development. I mean, these, are, these aren't before – he's not working in the, the, the county stories yet. Um, Soldiers Pay is world, a, world War, a World War I story. I imagine he, you know – pretended like he'd fought and used that experience mm. a little bit. Now who, this is kind of a, a little bit of inside baseball, but did, did Liverwright do those? Did Bonnie Liverwright publish? The yeah. First two? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's who published um, yep, right. both of those. Yeah. yeah and, very interesting. Yeah. And, and, and soldiers pay, they were kind of, it was a very kind of shrugging sort of thing. I mean, $3,000, it's not, you know, mm-hmm. it's not a ton of, and that's modern. That's not back then. I think it was like $200 back then. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So it was, you know, it was not much money whatsoever. And, and um, Mosquitoes came out like the next year and um, again was reasonably well reviewed, but just didn't sell. Um, and he's, while he's got two books, I don't know if you even want to call it on the stands. While he's got two books out there, he's back in Oxford selling refreshments at a golf course, painting houses painting signs for local businesses you know he's doing kind of like he's just like a weird dude in the neighborhood who also happens to be you know in a respectable fashion publishing these novels you know Um, the thing is there that would never have flown in the little community i grew up in but in the deep south oxford mississippi they do they do make a space for their eccentrics. Right. So you can be the guy who works at the golf course and might be a veteran. And, right. but also <laughs> don't you publish novels? And right, right. I mean, they, they kind of right. like that. They're like, Oh, these, you know, it's kind of yeah. like England, right? They're, they're, they're quite fond of their eccentrics and they kind of like that flavor. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh boy. I like yeah. places like that. <laughs> yeah, for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. For yeah. sure. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, he's, 
Now, 1929, this is, you know, Mosquitoes has come out, um, Soldier's Bay has come out, um, Sartori's has come out as well. Um, none of them, again, fairly decently reviewed, but not, not really getting any attention. Um, and then 1929 comes around, which I think is like this key year for Faulkner. One, Sound and the Fury comes out, which... It, I don't know. They, it doesn't get it doesn't get any better than Sound and the Fury. It just gets different, in my opinion. Mm. Um, you know, it's 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 a, just a powerhouse novel. And I thought he was older when he'd written that. I mean, he's thirty two when Sound and the Fury comes out. Um, this is pretty by our standards. He's a pretty young man, really. Very young. Yeah. Um, he also um, Estelle, his high school sweetheart she's gotten divorced um, or she gets divorced in 1929. Um, she had had, she'd been married to this guy, didn't go particularly well. He'd been able to like finance her to live in Hawaii and do some things, but it just didn't, it just didn't work. And so she's back around. Faulkner feels like he's fated to marry her. She feels like she's fated, excuse me, fated to marry him. And so after like a short courtship to kind of get to know each other once again, though they'd had some communication in the meantime, um, they get married. <laughs> um, uh, and this is the thing. So let me tell you, let me, let me read a little bit from this biography because I, I want you to get a sense of what this marriage was like right from the jump. Okay, this is Faulkner in a, in a letter, I believe, to his publisher. This is from the One Matchless Time biography. Um, Quote, I am going to be married, both want to and have to. And this is in all caps. This part is confidential, utterly. Okay. Ends caps. For my honor and the sanity, I believe, I believe life of a woman. This is not bunk. Neither am I being suck, sucked in. We grew up together and I don't think she could fool me in this way. That is, make me believe that her mental condition, her nerves are this far gone. And no question of pregnancy. That would hardly move me. No one can face his own bastard with more equanimity than I. Neither is it a matter of promise or on my, uh, of a promise on my promises. It's a situation which I engendered and permitted to ripen, which has become unbearable. And I am tired of running from the devilment I bring about. This sounds a little insane. Dot, dot, it's dot. really crazy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So you get married, whatever. Both sides of the family are like, are you sure? Like her dad is, is basically, <laughs> her dad's like, you're really going to marry this dude? And her, his family's like, so you're going to marry this woman who's gotten a divorce and has two kids and you basically are unemployed? Like, Ooh. you know what I mean? Hey, nobody's, it, nobody's a fan of this. It's and, not and clear he, to me, uh, Brad, sorry. No, what, go ahead. what denomination are they? What, uh, they must he, be Chris, a Christian um, family. Yeah. He, I think he got married in a Methodist church, I okay. believe. All right. Um, they, weren't ba- they were not Baptists. All um, right. I think later in life, he went to an Episcopalian church, okay. I believe. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I don't know, if Aaron, if you have any more insight into that. I don't, I don't know much about yeah. his church-going days. Methodist sounds, sounds right. It's hard for yeah. me to picture Faulkner inside of a church, though I think of him <laughs> as philosophically a Christian writer. I think yeah. he was. I think, I think, yeah, you know, maybe when it comes down to it, the metaphysical part of it, he kind of breaks down. But he, yeah, I think the, the values and all of that, for 100%. sure. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, um, so Kevin, I'm going to ask you a question. So they go on a honeymoon, right? Estelle and William, what is the worst, the most foreboding thing that can happen on a honeymoon? 
No, you sleep with her sister. Yeah, okay, that would be pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty no, bad. I don't know. I'm trying yeah. to think of the most foreboding thing that could happen on a honeymoon. That's, I think that's that's pretty good. Yeah. Now, well, if you, it's like I guess if somebody went missing, or if or if yeah. it ended poorly and somebody went home in a fit. I guess I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I don't yeah. know, Brad. I've only the, done it once. And right, it went right. Swimmingly. Yeah. <laughs> these are oh, that's that's good to hear. And these are all great answers. Um, Estelle on their honeymoon and it's it's kind of calling the honeymoons maybe a bit of a stretch they basically went to to louisiana and stayed for a while um estelle one night during this trip tries to commit suicide oh yeah yeah that oh right of course i've got to remember yeah what is an art of darkness episode without either a suicide or someone thinking of suicide or this is the podcast about the dark side of arts and and yeah of course i'm staring at this copy of the virginia wolf book right now i should have guessed brad it's always suicide yeah yeah Yeah, fun so so wait what on the honeymoon on the honeymoon honeymoon that's not good that's not good yeah so she apparently one night and she was a very heavy drinker like faulkner was um throughout her life Hmm. and one night um she walked out into the sea they were staying at a place like uh, my take is it's sort of like on the beach and they she walked out into the sea and she walked towards as a moonless night or a moonlit night. I'm sorry. She walked out in a, in a green robe and she walked out to a place where she knew there was a drop off. Faulkner somehow got attention of this and, and, and looked out the window and saw her and started screaming and yelling. Their neighbor ran down and dragged her back onto the beach. Um, so, you know, minutes later, she would have been she would have been gone. So. I will never understand the desire to wade into water as a form of suicide. I just, <laughs> I can't think about it. it, it what a really terrible bad. way to die. Right. Uh, no, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I think so too. It's terrifying. Oof. Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. 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 I don't like so, it. So that's an indicator of, you know, where she was at least in this, in this marriage. And, and that letter I think is an indication of where he was. Um, and yet they remained married, you know, um, through, throughout, you know, to the end, basically. Um, marriage is over. Sound of the Fury is kind of in development. He's had a couple of books out, but he needs a stable job. So what does he do? He gets a job as a, um, a night watchman at a power plant. Now we're talking. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the thing he's managed. He always managed to luck himself or think or strategize himself into a job where he could read and write as much as possible. Cause as a night watchman at a rural power plant, there's really not a lot of work to do. And so, you know, he's, he's working 6 PM to 6 AM or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And he's also um, writing as I lay dying. On the back of a on the back of a wheelbarrow, you told people. Yes. Yeah. This is this is the he's already written Sound and Sound the Fury. And the Fury. Oh yeah. my God. And yeah. he's working at a what did you say it was a power plant? A power plant as a oh night watchman. God. Yeah. And yeah. I let me jump in. Sound yeah, and the Fury it, is an absolute masterpiece. It's one of the it finest is. novels ever conceived. Mm-hmm. I mean, Gwen, would you agree? I mean, it's it's incredible. great. It's great. Yeah. It's not yeah. my favorite Faulkner, but it's yeah. it's undoubtedly a masterpiece. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I would say um, either Sound of the Fury or As I Lay Dying would probably be the best for someone who's never read any Faulkner to read. I would definitely, to, you I, know, yeah, ex- they're fairly accessible. 
Um, I've taught as I lay dying in intro classes, intro okay. to literature classes, and yeah. the students really respond to it. It's 16 narrators, um, all first person, very short chapters. And it's, I mean, it's a real banger. It, it's absolutely his shortest, most accessible, and, and just like, this is who this guy is. Right, right. Like, it, it nails it down. This is what I'm all about. And he said, you know, I wanted to write a novel by which my reputation could stand or fall. Oof. Yeah, that's, so that's, that's what's interesting is he has this deep ambition, right? Like, he was, he was trying to, from a literary standpoint, knock it out of the park, right? Absolutely. Um, and he did. He did in that one. And, and that is a cool book. I mean, it's, it's 16, yeah, like you said, 16 different perspectives. If I remember right, so what is the basic premise of that, that book here? Okay, so you have a family called the Bundren family. And the mother, Addie, is, when the novel starts, dying. And she will die in that novel. And we kind of know this is what's going to happen. And once she dies, this family who are rural uh, have a body on their hands and she wishes to be buried in town, which is Jefferson uh, on uh, that's modeled on Oxford. So she dies and her uh, sons and daughter and husband aunts uh, take her into town to be buried um, they start off in a wagon and end up uh, doing other things. Um, and they encounter what Faulkner calls the twin trials of fire and flood. Um, so he, he thought that was the, that was the, those, these were the worst things that could befall a human being that while moving, um, you're visited with fire and visited with flood. And he said, the only thing that's worse than that is war and war is only worse because it involves all the other three. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's right. interesting. And now, yeah. well, let's back up a second. Cause we want to lean on your expertise as much. Yeah. As yeah. Can you tell us what sound, tell us what sound and the fury, give us a, a take on what is sound and the fury, so you know, sound, what's going on. Sound and the fury is, is Faulkner's first. I mean, we're, we'll move past Sartorus and flags in the dust, which we'll call like a, that's Faulkner's first attempt to write about these people that he knows, you yeah, know, the rural like, people he knows. When you know what's coming later, those feel like warmups a little bit. Yeah, absolute. They're absolute yeah. warmups. Right. But sound of the Furies, the first time that he confidently talks about, I'm going to write about this postage stamp of earth that, that I know this, you know, for him, the Yachtnapatawpha country or the Yachtnapatawpha county. And so The Sound of the Fury is a family novel. There are four narrators as opposed to 16. Um, the first is Quentin Compson, who is the, the son of this dilapidated family, much like the Faulkner family, who once was great. The Compsons were once, you know, prosperous, and it's just entropy has taken hold of this family and ground it down. And so as a last ditch effort, the Compsons sell a huge part of their land, which then becomes a golf course, to send Quentin to Harvard so that Quentin can be a gentleman. And they believe that somehow this will, this is like a last ditch attempt. This is a Hail Mary pass to drag their name out of the dust. And you know, 
Quentin's a bright young man, and Quentin is the horse to bet on. We're going to send him to Harvard. He's going to be a gentleman, and, and we're going to recover this family. Well, you know, Quentin kills himself. Um, in the novel, Sound of the Fury, the other two narrators, um, Quentin's sister, around which the whole thing, uh, I'm sorry, Quentin's uh, brother, Benji, who is, I'm not sure what term we would use today to describe his condition, but he is impaired uh, intellectually. Um, and he also experiences time in a very unique way. So the past, the present, and the future are all one for Benjamin. And so he can't distinguish between those moments. So in his section, he's narrating everything. He's narrating the past, mixing it with the present, mixing it with things, foreshadowing things that are to come. Um, the other narrator is uh, the brother Jason, who is this brutal cynic. And his section starts, and he's, they're referring to the sister, Caddy, around who this whole narrative swirls. Uh, and Jason says, once a bitch, always a bitch, I say. That's his first line in his, in his section, right? Oof, um, and yeah. then the, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. the final Oof. chapter is this, the other three have been first person uh, narrators. The final chapter is referred to as the Dilsey section. And Dilsey is the African-American, not an enslaved woman, but, you know, this is in the early 1900s, where the condition of African-Americans living in rural uh, Mississippi is not by any means great, not by any means complete freedom. But she is the servant of this family, and she is given this beautiful third-person voice, and she is the kind of grace that that salves this, this so far nihilistic narrative that we've read. Um, so that is, yeah, that is the Sound of the Fury. Sound of the Fury is a real, and that's a real modernist work that announces itself as being, you know, this is a work of high modernism. You know, not everyone's going to get this. Uh, I'm going to, you know, put it down. And if you get it, you get it. Um, yeah. you can yeah. see, you know, I didn't, I hadn't thought about this since he started describing the Benji scenes and now I'm remembering, remembering that better. You can kind of see how he would have influenced somebody who seems so far afield as Borges, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. With the, with this, ta with this relationship and how he's depicting time moving and all of those sorts of things. You can see how somebody who's writing something that's very much not a, you know, a, a Southern novel who's doing something much more speculative could mm -hmm. start adopting some of these techniques, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah for sure. So, yeah, I mean, it, so he writes those two books. He writes Sound and the Fury and, and As I Lay Dying back to back um, in it's both amazing. of them in very short order because throughout his life, Faulkner, for all of his degeneracy and drinking and he had when he was working apparently had like superhuman focus it seems that's the only way to interpret the ways that he put some of these books together in the time frames and the conditions it it's it's startling like I, <laughs> that seems well, to be the case right yeah, i mean he yeah. he apparently wrote as ellie dying he said six weeks 
Now, it was probably a little longer than that, but not much. Yeah, yeah. There was another, and I might come to it, there's another book he wrote later in 47 days. Um, insane. So, so insane. Yeah, so just, just like biologically, we've got a freak on our hands in some way, right? Just he like, is a freak. He yeah. very much is. And, yeah. he, and there's, there's very little revision. I mean, you can look at the yeah. different versions of uh, Azalea Dine. And there yeah. are some edits and there are some changes, but he had those, he had those 16 people down, man. He right. had them down, all those different voices, yeah. uh, idiosyncrasies, their character traits, like, good grief, man. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron, do yeah. we know much about his writing habits in terms of his drinking? Is this somebody who had well, a bottle with him? Or? Different people <laughs> will tell you different things, but what I've come to believe is that he drank and drank and drank, and then he started a novel and sort of either really cut back on the drinking or stopped almost entirely, right? And so he drank and drank and drank, stopped, wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, and then drank and drank and drank and drank and drank. And so he was a binge drinker, and uh, he was writing or drinking. Yeah. That's do the, we know that's what is the impression I got. Yeah. Yeah, Brad, do we know what his uh, drink of choice was? Oh, whiskey. Probably I was going to say had to be yeah, here. after yeah. the bootlegging era, Jack Daniels. Yeah. Yeah, oh, man. Yeah. So it's um, one of those cases of, uh, do we wish that uh Faulkner had not been an alcoholic? Right. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. Very interesting. Tricky, family tricky, tricky. probably wishes, but uh, you know, um, one thing just for a historical context here, just a greater historical context. So um, sound of the fury comes out October, 1929 and, October 1929, there was also a major historical event, which was the stock market crashing. As I lay dying, he starts writing the day after the stock market crashes. So just just putting, just to give us a sense of where we're at in the world, you know, and imagine, imagine trying to sell um, uh, Sound and the Fury. Not only are you not particularly well known, not only is the book pretty strange in terms of marketability, but you're also <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> dealing with, you know, the, the greatest, you know, the biggest financial crisis of your young country's history. So I have, I have two things to say here real quick, Brad. Yeah. Uh, are we going to get to the scandal around this at some point? I, uh, because I know that th- I think it might have been banned uh, and maybe I'm getting ahead of things. Oh, you know, I didn't come across it being banned, actually. Hmm. Though okay. it might have been. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, now, Sanctuary, which was a book he was working on uh, sort of around this time, um, wouldn't come out for several years because the publishers all basically thought there was no way they could get away with publishing it. Um, huh. yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think, I think uh, Sanctuary came out in 31 or 32, um, mm-hmm. but, it, but it had been sitting in a desk drawer at his publishers for three or four years at that time. Well, the other thing I wanted to say was uh, an old timer in New York City who uh, traded the market. His father was also a, a trader, um, and his father would say, uh, said to him once when it, there was a, a very red day, a very red day on the market. He told him, uh, "You're going to want to walk in the middle of the street today." <laughs> wow! <laughs> wow! Yeah, I never forgot uh, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you know, Sound and the Fury comes out. And just like the previous books, it's it's mostly well reviewed. I mean, anything like that's that going that much out on a limb, it's it's going to have its detractors for sure. Um, but but his his literary cachet is starting to grow. Obviously, um, uh, now 1931, 
Estelle gives birth to a daughter named Alabama, who's named after Faulkner's aunt. Um, roll and, Tide. Yeah, Roll Tide. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Alabama was two months premature, and she would die after a week or two. She may have never even come home from the hospital. Um, this uh, might be. Now I feel the, bad about saying nah, roll tie. That's, that's, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, I don't. I don't want to derail you, but I did. I did yeah. uh, in the background here find out that these books have been censored periodically over time. Okay. You know, as yeah. I lay dying was banned by a number of school districts. For okay, that doesn't surprise me. Obscenity, using the yeah. gods, uh, using God's name in vain, talking yeah. about interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know if this was. He didn't pull yeah. punches. You right. know, he didn't no. he didn't he didn't gloss over stuff and use, you know, he might have used euphemisms and things, but he didn't he yeah. He, I mean sanctuary um sanctuary is his probably his I don't know if it's his, quite his darkest, but it's certainly his most Ooh. ripe for scandal and it's It's up there. It's, it's up there, man. Yeah. So tell us about tell us about sanctuary. Aaron. So Sanctuary is Faulkner's attempt to go hard-boiled in the tradition of Adashiel Hammett uh, and other writers who Faulkner saw as making some cash. And so Faulkner, I forget the word that he used, but something to the effect that he came up with the most grotesque premise that he possibly could, and that was a young Mississippi debutante who's a uh, University of Oxford student is kidnapped by a psychopathic pimp and taken to a Memphis brothel. And then I I don't even know the terminology for this, right? So uh, that man's name is Popeye and Popeye will periodically come into the room where she's strapped to the bed and in an attempt to make a prostitute of her, will rape her with a corn cob and then stand at the foot of the bed whinnying like a horse, right? And so uh, the only person looking for the, the uh, debutante, his name is Temple Drake, is, is a, a righteous uh, reporter. Imagine something like that. This could only exist in literature. A ri- righteous reporter who is uh, trying to solve the case that the authorities have, have given up. Wow. I didn't know that one. I don't know that one. That's a crazy book. On. That is crazy. Yeah. Fascinating. It's a crazy book. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. And, and, and this was, you know, though the publishers were reluctant to, to put it out um, and though it did cause a little bit of a scandal, um, it made, I think it was his first, I think he, he made more money at that time. He made more money off of Sanctuary than anything before it. Um, and it was definitely something that spread into, into Europe. Like this is where um, folks in France started to pay attention to him was with Sanctuary. Now, and then, you know, subsequently would go back and look at his previous work. But this was the thing that sort of, you know, made people raise their eyebrows internationally with, with mm. Sanctuary. That's very um, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, and yeah, I guess to do that, you got to really, you got to do something wild, right? <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. and then maybe people start paying attention a little bit. Um, I wonder if this, uh, yeah, oh, I'm sorry. No, uh, do you think that this is the first, I can't think of another, maybe there's a glaring one that I'm not thinking of. Is this the first abduct, abducted girl in American literature? I mean, this becomes a huge trope. You know, the girl has gone missing. I mean, how many 
of these yeah. books have become bestsellers of the last 20 years. Yeah. And I wonder good, if this is a good yeah. point. Now I know that. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and Lolita too is, is yeah. that, that's what Lolita uh, is. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. Which came, yeah. you know, some, a couple decades later, I, the only thing I can think of, and I can't even think of the specific book, but there was a bit of a trope of that in Westerns with, which it's that's different right. with, with tribes right. taking, taking girls. Right. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the searchers, right? Yeah, the searchers, yeah, the, searchers. the great western. Yep. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that is definitely a trope, and he's playing it. He's playing it, you know, in his style as excellently as anybody. Um, so at this point, like 1931, 32, he um, he starts getting some attention as a writer more than he was before. I mean, to us, to me, a review, a, a decent review in the New York Times sounds like a home run. But he's starting to get, you know, actual attention and he um, and getting, you know, reasonably well known in literary circles. He um, he goes up to this conference in Virginia's conference on Southern writers um, and he basically at the reception just publicly vomits because he's been drinking so hard all day. Um, and this is the thing, this is the thing you kind of learn about Faulkner as you go through. Faulkner, um, he drank when there was good news. He drank when there was bad news. He drank when he was stressed out. He drank when he was anxious because he had a touch of social anxiety, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And he, he, so he drank when he was stressed and he drank when he was bored. So you've got, it was the, it was the go-to for everything, basically. Um, and his volumes were apparently pretty astounding to most people. What he could put, what he could throw back in a day. So, so there's this, there's this uh, a trope in Faulkner's life, going to some event where he's, if not the guest of honor, he's definitely somebody that people at this event, and whether it's New York or wherever, they're paying attention to him, and he is smashed to the gills. Ah, um, either that's always a good look after or dirt. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I, having been that guy uh, yeah. a few times, you don't want to be that guy. No. You don't want to be that guy. No, yeah, don't be that guy. No. It's, it's fun. It's fun in your early 20s, but it starts yeah, to get right. really yeah. sad as you right. clean into your 30s. Well, Dennis yeah. Rodman probably produced the most egregious form of this. If you've seen the documentary, Big Bang and Ping Yang Yang, where Dennis Rodman <laughs> gets okay. drunk at a state Ooh. dinner in North Ooh. Korea, oh oh, grabs the mic away from a North Korean woman singing their traditional song, Ooh. and goes into a rendition of Sublime Santeria. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, well, and then, yeah. of course, you know, you need to drink more later to for the shame having done this. Yeah. Although yeah, I don't know yeah, how much absolutely. shame, you know, uh, yeah. he had. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Whoa, doggy. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, Sunday morning coming down. <laughs> from yeah, from Pyongyang. Yeah. <laughs> from Pyongyang. Jeez. <laughs> All right, Brad, go on. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. Right. That's... Uh, so he's in, you know, so Faulkner is in the great tradition of embarrassing yourself at important dinners for sure. Um, he, um, around this time, he, um, 1932-ish, he buys Roanoke, which would be, um, which was sort of a, a somewhat rundown farmhouse um, outside of Oxford. Um, he would quit the post, uh, he would quit the, um, not the post office, he would quit the power plant and, and sort of take a, take a summer to try and restore it. And, and this place would be somewhere that he would, he would live at least part of the year for the rest of his life. Um, and it ended up being very, it, in some ways, it's probably a little bit of a albatross around his neck financially, because as soon as he gets Roanoke, 
some other bills start compiling and Faulkner's pretty much worried about money for close to the rest of his life. Um, sort of never ends. There is an interesting thing here too. We talk about, you know, this is, this is place, uh, a part of the world where, you know, a um, hundred years before this, there's slavery going on. Faulkner has servants, um, African-American servants who are not paid though he takes care of their food, lodging, and medical bills. And I, I just read that and I was like, well, wait a second. <laughs> so they're, they're like grad students. It was also strange. <laughs> like he was really good friends, like, like hmm. close friends. Yeah. It's, it's, this is only strange because of the culture of that place at that time, yeah. obviously. But very close friends with a number of African-American men and, you know, dedicates several of his novels to the African-American women who, or the African-American woman who, like, raised him, was like his right. nanny. Right. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. And, I, yeah, and I don't know that this is him having these servants. You, you wonder what his thoughts were about it. I mean, it might, right. he probably was friendly, you know, treated them, quote, unquote, uh, decently in terms of, like, just interpersonally. Mm -hmm. and okay he's taking care of their food lodging and medical bills and 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 in his head you want kind of wonder what the gymnastics are like right. is it is he justify not paying them because well we take care of everything that they need what else right. do you, you know i i don't know it's just very, very interesting i read that and i thought man you gotta you didn't pay you didn't pay them anything <laughs> yeah yeah i didn't know that part yeah. that's really wild man yeah. that's wild yeah um, so 1932, again, wrote, he bought Roanoke, bills are mounting, and this is when we get Faulkner in Hollywood. Um, and it's so interesting to think about Faulkner in Hollywood. For a great sense of the, I think, what the vibe of that might have been like, I don't know if either of you guys have seen the great film Barton Fink. Oh my gosh, amazing. Yeah, 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 so, yeah so I He's mean, a playwright. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, um, the W.P. Mayhew is a sort of a caricature of Faulkner. Absolutely. In, in that film, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, so you've got this sort of Southern aristocratic gentleman, at least in mannerism, who's just a total lush, but also a literary genius, also kind of prostituting himself to Hollywood. You know, it's a, it's a really interesting conundrum. But this is the thing. He made boatloads of money when he was there. His first contract was for $450 a week at the time. If you do the math, that is roughly $9,000 a week right now. Unreal, man. I mean, TV writers uh, start at $5,000 a week right now, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, right, it's, right. It is a amazing. great yeah. way to make money if you can do it. Of course, you, you, in most cases, have to sell a little part of your soul to do it. Sure. And uh, he did. Yeah. But uh, uh, my, my DMs are open. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so so I mean, yeah, so that's uh, that's some pretty good I mean, I don't know anybody who who would who would bat, you know, who would turn down $9,000 a week. That's 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 pretty good scratch. Good and money. also yeah, and also it was something he could do. He didn't have to do, you know, full-time forever. He could work he would work for a while. He would have short-term contracts and that sort of thing. Um Mostly he's sort of contributing di bits of dialogue and, and scene ideas. He's not like the main screen that you would have like a writer's block where you'd have a right. bunch of people all working on stuff. Um, so he, he wrote, um, 
he wrote uh, the Howard Hawks film based on the Hemingway uh, novel to have and have not. I, yeah. I believe. Yes. Yeah, that was the first, that was uh, the first thing he worked on that was like actually um, that he contributed a, a significant, it might've been his first screen credit actually. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and it was successful. I mean, that was Bogart and, and Lauren Bacall and right. you know, that, that was, that was a hit. Um, it, but you have to imagine there had to have been a little bit of bitterness working on a Hemingway. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine? You know, can you imagine? Right. I really Absolutely. did not know this side of Faulkner's, uh, you know, history. Yeah. Go oh, on. Yeah. He spent a lot of time in Hollywood, actually. Hmm. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he would become, he would become, uh, uh, you know, he was a bit of a character out there because he dressed the way that he dressed, you know, he dressed in, in like Southern gentleman kind of outfits and tweeds and things like that. He, nobody, he walked around with a cane and nobody, nobody really looked like him. Um, early on even though he wasn't successful screenwriting at all the re it seemed like producers and things liked to have him around because he just his presence you know Faulkner works for us lent the whole enterprise a little bit of prestige right if, if you're sitting if you got Faulkner in the back office working on your screenplay you're doing something serious you know Very credibility yeah, right. that's that's still to this day what people trade on. A lot of playwrights will right. have the one play. It'll get the New York Times review. Maybe it'll be nominated for or a finalist for the for the Pulitzer. And then the phone rings, and they don't write another play for five years because they're they're off in Hollywood working for HBO or Netflix. Right. And just right. sort of the way of it. Yeah, yeah. And and Faulkner, Faulkner. So he became over time. He became a little bit of a. I don't even want to say a socialite necessarily, but people knew who, who he was and he would go out to dinner and he was drinking a lot, you know, oftentimes, especially later as he got a little bit more established, you know, he would start drinking at work first thing in the morning. He would take, be sipping from his flask and just, you know, oh, he would say, oh, I got to lubricate my, my tonsils, you know, before mm -hmm. I make work. Um, it's a, a trap, great... gentlemen. It's a yeah. trap. <laughs> That's right. It is. There's a great anecdote. Um, okay, so... Uh, one evening, Howard Hawks, I'm reading from the biography again. Um, one evening, Howard Hawks introduced Faulkner to Clark Gable, who asked the young man which writers he should be reading. Faulkner replied, Hemingway, Cather, Mann, Dos Passos, and William Faulkner. Surprised by the last name on the, the list, Gable asked, oh, do you write? Faulkner replied, yes, Mr. Gable, what do you do? Oh, <laughs> just the, snap! Just the, just the smug, you know, smug jerk. Apparently, Clark Gable and Faulkner would, would become friends. They would even, like, go hunting together and stuff like that. Wow. So, oh, I like Clark, that. Yeah, Clark Gable yeah, probably yeah, thought it was cool. funny, you know. Um, but, but, yeah. Probably so, so, why they became friends in, in, probably, my, in my mythology, right? It would be. Yeah, yeah. Clark Gable's like, oh, this is this guy who, you know, a guy like Clark Gable, he probably had a lot of yes men around, you know. Mm -hmm. There yeah. is a fantastic moment in the film Patton uh, where uh, Patton is standing uh, opposite the Russian general, his, his counterpart, the Soviet counterpart, mm -hmm. and the translator is there. Uh, and uh, uh, Patton says something to the translator to the effect of, you tell this son of a gun in stronger language, you know, I have no interest in having a goddamn drink with him. And the, <laughs> and the uh, you know, uh, the, the translator says, uh, you know, sir, sir, you know, General Patton, there's no way I can say this to this, this guy. And Patton says, say it to him exactly the way that I said it. <laughs> and he says it and there's this moment of huge tension and then it, 
it breaks because the Russian, of course, smiles and realizes this is one soldier talking to another soldier. That's how they talk to each other. So yeah, it was this yeah, great, yeah. yeah, sometimes you got a nega guy. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's true. It's true, right? Yeah. 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 All right. Uh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, you know, he's got, he's got Hollywood going on, but he never stops. He never stops working on the stuff he wants to. 1932, um, Light in August comes out. Um, and, and his 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 sort of uh, credibility is just rising by this. I heard you talking a little bit. I heard when I managed to get my stuff myself put together over here. I heard you talking a little bit about Light in August. This is one I've never read, Aaron. So I don't know. It's maybe a you crazy can... book, and it's one that Faulkner in later interviews. There's a great book of uh, transcriptions of interviews called Faulkner in the University, and this is when he had his cushy. Uh, UVA writer in residence job toward the end of the 50s. This is after the Nobel. You know, he's several Pulitzers in and all this kind of stuff. Um, but Faulkner would confuse a character from Light in August named Joanna Burden with the woman who lies dying in As I Lay Dying, which is Annie, I'm sorry, Addie Bundren. So he would not always be able to keep these people straight himself. Um, as a or, uh, light in August, it centers around a character named Joe Christmas, and Joe Christmas is this—he's the stranger who comes to town, right? So he comes to Jefferson, and he has this fascinating backstory, and is a man of violence and a man that some people are drawn to. And uh, he falls into a love affair with this woman, Joanna Burden. And the central fact about Joe Christmas is that, this is a quote from Christmas. He tells Joanna Burden, I think I might have a little black blood in me. Right? So, and this, yeah, is, this, is a, so, this is a Faulkner theme too, right? Like this it is, is a Faulkner yeah. theme. This is a big thing. But with Christmas, he deals with the whole idea of quote unquote, and this is not a kosher term now, but it was an obsession uh, in, in the South, the idea of quote miscegenation, right? This is a kind of intellectual quote miscegenation, right? Because Christmas doesn't even know if he's African-American or if he has African-American genealogy or lineage, he has no idea, but just the idea, right? Just the suggestion that I think I might have all the conditionals, right? I think I might have a little black blood in me. And just the idea of that in his mind is enough to completely destroy him. Right, that that is how uh, uh, volatile race is in America. It doesn't even have to be real. It doesn't even have to yeah. be. Wow! Right? Yeah. It can just yeah. the, the introduction of the. And this is a boy who could have chosen to believe. Oh well, if I think I might, I also might not. So. Well, this, right? this but, continues to this day, uh, yeah. I think, with Absolutely. Elizabeth Warren being the most famous example. There's yep. this yep. kind of strange racial dynamic in America that really only exists in this country. It's unique to this country. That's um, right. I doubt. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah. And, yeah, I think- and Faulkner was there first with that. I mean, yeah. I, I just, I really hammer this with my students because they want to see him sometimes as a biracial character. And Faulkner plays with that, with his mm-hmm. descriptions of him, where he like he plays with certain things that are tropes of portrayals of African-American men, but then he'll pull away and you're like, okay, I don't, I don't know. Ultimately, it doesn't matter in the spiritual and larger human sense, but for this character's psychology, yeah. just the notion, just the thought that this is part of him spins him out of control and spins other people around him out of control. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and I think it, it, it's, it's Faulkner. It, it was interesting to Faulkner, not only because it was sort of going on around him, but the old Colonel, his great grandfather had had a child with one of his slaves and, mm. um, and there were, there were apparently at times people who speculated if, at some point in Faulkner's own lineage, there had been an instance of miscegenation, um, and so you wonder if Faulkner, at some point, had had a little bit of a—I don't know if you want to call it a crisis—but had had some some questions and some doubts himself about his own his own personal lineage. You know, whether he had a, a drop of that black blood in him, and what the implications of that were. It's very interesting. Yeah, there's, so. there's this devastating moment uh it like Faulkner really he shades the race thing down so close like he he plays with every subtle nuance that I can think of and there's toward the end of the book I won't do spoils but several catastrophic things happen and it just kind of brings the whole town down on this one house where Christmas has been the sheriff shows up there's a mob, there's all this stuff going on. And the sheriff trying to figure out what is going on says something that will strike our ears very offensive, but says something that's culturally true. He comes to the scene, he looks around, and then he says, get me a, and he uses the N-word. Now, not a man of a particular name, right? Get me any inward right 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 and right. they they seize hold the, the the nearest you know some yeah. poor african-american man but that man what the sheriff understands is he is plugged into a network culturally that is closed to the caucasian members of that community right right and so right. there is there's a flip side to the power dynamic which by shutting out African-American members of this community, they've also shut out their, their um, you know, back to the internet metaphor. They've closed, they've put a firewall up and it goes both ways. Like they can't, you know, they shut out the other, but then they can't hear the other and they can't know what the other knows. Right, right. It's yeah, really interesting. No, that is definitely, that is definitely going, um, from a that, that intellectually is going much deeper than like there's racism and it's bad oh my right? gosh it's like you Absolutely. Know what I mean? it's, it's going much deep into much deeper la- layers and levels of that um yeah absolutely that's, that's interesting that's one I, I at some point um i'm gonna circle back and read that late in august because in the description i read in the biography it sounded 
Um, it definitely sounded like one I had missed. Um, it's and, it's and one of the greats. It to. is definitely, yeah. yeah, it's good that you have, it's great to have these great novels waiting for you, right? It You're is. like, well, haven't got <laughs> yeah. to it yet, but I know yeah. this is one of the, like, it's yeah. a banger, man. It's another right. banger. Right, right. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, so um, just getting back a little bit to the timeline, um, Blight in August comes out 1932. 1933, Estelle and Faulkner have a daughter, Jill. Jill lives, everybody. She's, by all accounts, a wonderful woman and lives well into adulthood. Um, uh, uh, also around this time, Faulkner gets, oh, one thing we should mention about this just to main, just to keep the marriage between Estelle and Faulkner alive. Faulkner claimed that after Jill was born, Estelle would never sleep with him again. So <laughs> you've got, you've, you know, and that's, that's rough, <laughs> sure. um, you know, to be, to be, you know, and, and you're making a bunch of money and you're taking care of people and you're out in Hollywood and all of these things and your wife won't even touch you. Um, um, now that this would lead to, um, this would lead to, Short, not that long after the, I think a year after um, Jill was born, um, Faulkner meets Meta Carpenter, who's an assistant to the director Howard Hawks. She's about ten years younger than Faulkner, very charming, very pretty, and they fall into an extended fling um, that would that would be sort of on and off for years. Um, you know, whenever he was in Hollywood, basically. Um, one note I want to hit real quick because after Light in August. Um, a little bit of money's coming in. Faulkner gets really into flying, flying planes. He's sponsoring, excuse me, sponsoring air shows and that sort of thing. It was just a fascination of his. And from out of this, he wrote what most critics say is his worst book, which is a book called Pylon, which is, uh, uh, it was, I think it was about, um, it was about pilots who were, um, they were like barnstormers who would like yeah. travel around the South doing barnstorming and, and generally it. it's panned, but I had never read it. I don't have an It's weird. Now. It's a weird, weird book. And it doesn't, it's, Faulkner's mm, at his worst when he's doing a comedy and that's mm -hmm. what it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it seemed like nobody liked it basically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's interesting. So he writes late in August, then he writes this clunker of, of pylon. And then the next next book is absalom absalom right um that's the one that's yeah. the one and he's this writing this one he's writing absalom absalom it's i think it's worthwhile to note he's he's waking up at five o'clock in the morning he's in hollywood when he writes a lot of it at least finishes it he's waking up at five o'clock in the morning writing absalom absalom for three or four hours and then he's going in to work on scripts all day um which is just impressive in my opinion um he's on fire it's yeah. not completely on fire. <clears throat> and I want to talk about Absalom, Absalom, but there's one sort of narrative story note I want to hit here about Faulkner's life. He's working on Absalom, Absalom. He's also working on this um, screenplay called The Road to Glory, which is sort of the next step up in the Hollywood success he's had so far. Um, and when it's finished, when it finishes, when he's finished with both Absalom and Absalom and the Road to Glory, he goes on to one of his most epic benders. Um, <laughs> And this is the first time, because he's getting a little older. I mean, this is, uh, what, he's 39 years old. He's been drinking heavy since he was a teenager. This one actually lands him in the sanatorium um, mm. in Bahalia near, near Oxford. Um, and this is a place that the sanitarium in Bahalia is a place that Faulkner will come to know extremely well in the back half of his life. Mm. Um, um, he, 
<laughs> I we'll get to it. Um, so he's got uh, so Absalom, Absalom, Aaron. I I just read this book last year actually, um, and I had tried to read it years ago and sort of maybe got distracted or didn't mm-hmm. get it or something, and then read it last year and was just blown away. So I give us a give us give us your absolutely. Yeah, I your take on Absalom Absalom. I this is my pick for the great American novel that everyone's perennially searching for and can't seem to locate. Um, and there are books in this um, at this level, right? I, I think Moby Dick is one of these books that's a clear candidate for great American novel. It is a brilliant, amazing, maddening, uh, crazy, great book. Um, I would say Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian is one of these books. I would say Don DeLillo's Underworld is one of these books. I'd say oh, Toni Morrison's Beloved is one of these books. Playing the hits here, Aaron. Yeah, yeah, Colson, yeah you White. and I got the same list pretty much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Colson White, Whitehead's The Underground Railroad is one of these books. All right, I would, uh, that then. Yeah, yeah I, Lolita is one of these books. And even though it's written by a European writer, it couldn't be more American. Um, I think Dennis Johnson's Tree of Smoke is one of these books. I think uh, Tree of Smoke yeah. is so good. Oh it's incredible. It's an yeah. incredible book. It's incredible writing. Um, I, I would also put, uh, this is a newer book, but I, I put Philip Meyer's The Sun into this camp. I think that is a book that keeps pace right with all those books. I do think Absalom Absalom ends up, because, because of its Shakespearean notes, and because of when it's written and how it's written, because of how it's tied in with well, issues it's, of... It's difficult, too, of those books you listed. That's right. Other than Moby Dick, it's probably the most difficult, I would say. Absolutely. No, it's, yeah. a, it's a challenging book, and Faulkner does not, does not do anything to assist the reader. Um, he, he assumes, like, if you're down with this, uh, every quirk that I have as a writer, every idiosyncrasy... I'm going to throw at you. The, the book is essentially this. It's essentially redneck Citizen Kane is, is what it essentially <laughs> is. Yes. Right? Yes. But at yeah. a, at a, at, on a rural scale and in a way that speaks to Southern history. So it is about a man. <laughs> and there, there are numerous people telling the story about this man. This man uh, in the present of the book, which is... Quentin Compson from Sound of the Fury. He killed himself in the Sound of the Fury, but this is a sort of, sort of weird prequel. So Quentin Compson is, is one of the narrators and becomes an actor in this local legend. There's a man, there was a man named Thomas Sutton, who was a big deal in, in the history of Jefferson, Mississippi. First came to Jefferson in 1833, right? And, and, Quentin in 1910 is drawn back into the mystery of this man who he's heard of all of his life, who he has opinions about and has heard stories about and will make stories about. And Thomas Sutton, the local legend, his story is essentially this. Once upon a time in 1833, this stranger named Thomas Sutton rolls into Jefferson, Mississippi, uh, with a wagon filled with um, 
African-American slaves unlike any of the African-American slaves that are in Mississippi. So what we find out later is that they're Haitian and that Sutpen has brought them with him. And he proceeds to uh, live with these other men naked in the woods, having acquired, acquired is also attenuated here, having um, hoodwinked. Uh, a Native American tribe member out of a hundred square miles of land outside Jefferson, uh, Sutpen and his, the enslaved men with him build this mansion out in the middle of the swamps. And, you know, this, this, this whole plantation comes to life. And then once Sutpen has his mansion, uh, he hangs out and kind of, it's kind of a big hunting palace. He's, I mean, it's like a TikTok house in LA only with hunting and deer and alligator. Right. <laughs> um, and so, you know, he's out there doing that. And then one day he wakes up and he goes and gets windows, furniture and finds a wife and finds a wife in the way that he would select everything else he's ever selected. Right. So he goes to church, sits down the next day. He's at the, He's at this woman's named Ellen, uh, this cold field. He's at her home proposing a big partnership with her father, who's a local merchant, right? And so through various lenses and different people, so we start off and Quentin is listening to a woman, an old woman named Rosa Coldfield, who was Thomas Sutton's sister-in-law. And she is telling Quentin this story and wants him to do something for her connected to this old house. And then Quentin gets home and he's on a vacation from Harvard, right? So he talks to his father. His father starts telling him some things about Thomas Sutton. And that's chapter two. And then chapter three, well, here are some things that your grandfather told me about Thomas Sutton. And then all of a sudden, Quentin's up at Harvard and he's getting letters from his father and his father's continuing the story. And then telling him, okay, here's what just happened to Rosa Coldfield. And then Quentin and his um, dorm mate, uh, a kid named Shreve McCaslin, also a freshman at Harvard, they begin to, and, and the most bravura passage of Absalom that goes on several chapters, they begin to fill in all the blanks, all the stuff they don't know. So Quentin will tell a while, and then all of a sudden Shreve, who's from Canada, will pick up and start telling. And Shreve knows none of this at this point, but everything he says and everything Quentin says has the weight of authority. And they'll, they'll even say, oh, stop, stop, let me play for a while, right? And then they'll go on with Sutton's story. And at that point, as a reader, you're like, okay, all of this is washing over me with the feeling of truth and legend and myth, I don't know how much of what I'm hearing is accurate. And in fact, how much, how much have I heard so far about Sutton is accurate? You know, what are, the, what are the nobles and what are the not nobles? So in addition to being about slavery, race, um, uh, acquiring quote unquote land from Native Americans in ways that amount to theft, um, and all these big questions of America, it's also about storytelling and, and history and how we know all of this, right? So it, it combines all of, that, all of that thematic 
amazing quintessentially American stuff with this narrational strategy. That's a complete tour de force. It, I mean, as a performance, you know, as a writer, you're just watching this thing happen. You're like, good grief. Oh, it's, so, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's stunning. It is one of, you know, there's been a handful of books and some of them that are ones you've listed where, where I've thought, man, I can't do that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty cocky about these sorts of it's things. Amazing. So it's amazing. It's, 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 it's stunning. It's, it's, that was, it's amazing that one, that one person could kind of come up with this and, 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 it is. A, I mean, I strongly recommend it to anybody, but it's one of those books that I have that people ask me, and I'm sure you guys get this too, will ask you for book recommendations. Right. You know, and I don't know that I've ever recommended that one to anybody. <laughs> That's just sort of passing right. me in because cause it's just like, I don't know. I don't know if most people are going to, because it, it is difficult. It, it's, it's, it, if you're not comfortable with not knowing what's going on, what's true, what's false, being able to connect the dots and all of that, it's going to be a, tr- it's going to be a challenging read. Um, to me, I found it absolutely compelling. Once I settled into oh, its man. groove and like you said, let it wash over me, I right. was page after page was just stunned by, by the, the deafness and the language and the, and the, absolutely. builds this thing on the, he builds this thing on very genre, mm-hmm. on a very genre trellis. It's a detective story. Right. I was going to say a that. a yeah. murder mystery, right? Right. And it so is, that yeah. is, deep structure is that. But then, of mm-hmm. course, I've picked out a little passage from a, yeah. if you oh, yeah. want me to, okay, so yeah, this is, please. I'll just read a page, right? Yeah. And in this section, just to give some context, this is Quentin and Shreve, his roommate, talking about Thomas Sutton. And in this particular section, this is something that has been passed on from Quentin's grandfather, who's known as General Compson, and who was Sutton's friend, right? So when we think about narrative authority, we think, okay, this is a guy Quentin's related to. This is my grandfather. He knew Sutton and was his personal friend, and Sutton divulged things to him that he didn't divulge to anyone else. Sutpen's only friend in this town that becomes increasingly hostile to the Sutpens. So this is Quentin talking, channeling his grandfather, who is in turn telling about something Sutpen told him. And in this passage, this is Sutpen's origin story. And so we find out, oh, wow, Sutpen came out of Virginia back before there was a West Virginia and a regular Virginia before the Civil War. And he was born up in the Appalachian Mountains. And this is just a passage where Faulkner shows the Sutpen family, you know, who are completely backwoods. Uh, and I believe hillbilly is the actual correct term, like total Appalachian yeah. hillbillies, right? Yeah. Up in the woods. And they, they kind of just fall down the mountain over a period of months and end up in the tidewater. They fell into it, the whole family, returned to the coast from which the first Sutpen had come, tumbled head over heels back to tidewater by sheer altitude, elevation, and gravity, as if whatever slight hold the family had had on the mountain had broken. He said... 
key being Sutton, he said something to grandfather about his mother dying about that time and how his pap said she was a fine, wearying woman and that he would miss her, and something about how it was the wife that had got his father even that far west. And now the whole passel of them, from the father through the grown daughters down to the one who couldn't even walk yet, slid back down out of the mountain, skating in a kind of accelerating and sloven and inert coherence, like a useless collection of flotsam on a flooded river, moving by some perverse auto-motivation, such as inanimate objects sometimes show, backward against the very current of the stream, across the Virginia plateau and into the slack lowlands about the mouth of the James River. He didn't know why they moved or didn't remember the reason if he ever knew it, whether it was optimism, hope in his father's breast, or nostalgia, since he didn't know just where his father had come from, whether from the country to which they returned or not, or even if his father knew, remembered, wanted to remember and find it again. He didn't know whether somebody, some traveler had told him of some easy place or time, some escape from hardship of getting food and keeping warm in the mountain way, or if perhaps somebody his father knew once, or who knew his father once and remembered him, happened to think about him, or someone kin to him who had tried to forget him and couldn't quite do it, had sent for him, and he had obeyed, going not for the promised job, but for the ease, having faith, perhaps, in the blood kinship to evade the labor, if it was kinship, and in his own inertia, and in whatever gods had watched over him this far. And that's a sentence. Whew. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, that's yeah. uh you you yeah. see people, you see young writers try to mimic this a lot. Right. And it just doesn't always work. It very rarely yeah. works. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, it has to be the way you think, right? That mm, is yeah. that's not an affect. Like Faulkner didn't take that from someone. This is who he was. This is right. how he told stories, right? Yeah. 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 No. And that's, yeah, we, I mean, I I had thoughts about his relationship to some of the other modernists and, 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 you know, there's, you come across criticism of of Faulkner and they want to talk about it being stream of consciousness and you relate that to Virginia Woolf and things like that. And and, and there is a sense in which it is stream of consciousness, but it's like, it it isn't necessarily how most people's brains works. It's almost like uh, I don't know. It's the stream of consciousness of God or something. It's, it's right. <laughs> and, and not to put him on a godlike status, but there is this 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 perspective on time that mm-hmm. is is absolutely uh, it's unparalleled in anything that I've read. So there's something um, about the deity there, though. Like the, yeah. I, when I start talking about him, like I don't want to put him on the level of God either, but there is something. <sighs> like a sacred text. Right. I I think it, to some degree, I do actually think it has something to do. I think this is what called parataxis where you use and, 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 and that's that old Testament biblical. And they came down from this mountain and then they saw them upon the floodplain and they reached out to them and they said, 
Like yeah. there's something about that rhetorically that is really powerful and really mm-hmm. stirs up some deep yeah. stuff for those of us raised in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And you see, you see Cormac McCarthy using that. Oh my gosh. For sure, right? Yeah. Interesting how that one little word can, can at least kick that vibe off if oh my gosh. fully maintain it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he's, he's writing that and he's also, you know, at the same time in his own life is cranking out the Hollywood stuff. It's amazing. <laughs> it's it's kind of crazy that he can be doing, to me, it's just insane that he could be doing both of those things at the same time. I, I, and man, a third whiskey. component. Yeah. And a third component. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is, yeah. We should tell, like, things have flipped now. If you're a short story writer, yeah, yeah, you I'm have to support to your short mm-hmm. story habit through novels. And Faulkner, this yeah. entire time, is writing short stories to support, like, you have to, you, yeah. today you have to write novels to support your short stories. He's writing short stories to support his novels because yeah. the short story is a lucrative yeah. form that has a big market, Saturday Evening Post and Collier's yeah. and all these magazines. So he's making really good money and working out some of the ideas that he'll install in his novels. Absalom starts off as a short story called Wash. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. You could make you at that time, you could make, um, you know, several hundred dollars in those days, dollars, several hundred dollars, a thousand dollars for a short story, you know, absolutely. Uh, It was significant money. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fitzgerald Ooh. sort of re- famously wrecked himself on those magazine stories is what mm-hmm. people sort of said. Um, right. But he was doing right. it to support Zelda and, and their crazy lifestyle and everything. Yeah. 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 So one thing in, in, um, so getting into the biography a little bit and, and Absalom, Absalom is in, in a lot of ways, maybe the high point of his literary output. I mean, you could put Absolutely. out. Almost anything after that, and it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to no doubt. catch it's that all downhill. Again. Yeah, yeah. No matter what you do, um, uh, so he's in Hollywood. He's back and forth between Oxford and Hollywood. Um, now the Hollywood stuff, he still has to keep doing for money. Um, um, there is there is a thing about why he needed so much money because I got I was very curious. He's making this, you know, a thousand dollars a week or whatever, which is like ten grand or whatever it is in modern time. And he's still kind of broke. And I was, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. And in the biography, you start to learn that he was he was taking on all kinds of so when he married Estelle, she had two kids. He took them under his wing. He was financially responsible for him. He had his daughter. He had the staff the the staff of Roanoke. Um, his brother Dean had died in an airplane crash, which Faulkner felt terrible about because he'd encouraged Dean to take up flying. Um, uh, so he, so Faulkner took basically took over financial responsibility for his brother's brother Dean's kids. Um, he eventually, when um, Faulkner's dad would die, he would take over financial responsibility for his mother, who would live almost to the end of Faulkner's life. So he's just taking it and and he's also not very good with money either and he's got this farm and he's got you know um he had he wasn't shy about buying a boat or a car or a horse or you know a month's supply of booze or whatever right so so it's kind of all through this time in hollywood writing absalom absalom um you know he's basically on the razor's edge of being broke all the time at least in his own mind He's like um, Johnny Depp. 
Yeah, right, right. Like it doesn't matter how much money you make. It always, right. you're always kind of broke. You hear those stories is so crazy of these people yeah. who they have money managers. And I think part of it is that they have this trust that, that gets yeah. established. Then they just wave yeah. their hands. They don't care. I'm hanging out with Hunter S. Thompson. I'm hanging out right. with uh, the right. Rolling Stone guys. Ah, money. Right. Ah. And right. then before right. you know it, you're hose. Yeah, wild. Right. No bueno. Right. Yeah. No good. So, yeah. So also in these years, um, the Absalom, Absalom years, the heat. He's had this. He's got this relationship with um, with Meta that I talked about, and this is a thing that he does when he's in Hollywood. He he sleeps around with with Meta, and he they go to dinner, and it's you know they're almost like boyfriend girlfriend when he's in Hollywood. Um, at one point, though, on one of his trips to Hollywood, Estelle and the family end up coming with him. Um, oh damn! Yeah. So okay. So let me just read this little passage. Um, <laughs> About and I, this is I just want to give you more color on the Estelle relationship. Um, <clears throat> so this is one of his trips to Hollywood. I want to say this is in thirty six or thirty eight. Um, <clears throat> Estelle agreed to these arrangements, and they soon settled into life in Hollywood. Unfortunately, Faulkner hated the project at hand, a film called The Last Slaver about the ruins of slavery in the South. He was also miserable with Estelle looking over his shoulder and therefore not being able to spend any time with Meta. As often happened in difficult situations, he took earnestly to the bottle, as did Estelle. On one rare occasion when he and Estelle went to a cocktail party at Joel Sayer's house, she got so tipsy that the house quietly suggested that Faulkner take her home and return to the, po- the party by himself. Faulkner did, but he came back with horrible scratches on his cheek and neck, explaining that Estelle had resisted his attempt to return to the party. Another time he came into the studio with a huge purple lump on his forehead. What happened, David Hampstead said. I was just reading a magazine and she came at me with a croquet mallet, Faulkner explained. Oh, so, golly. yeah, tempestuous. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so he's, his, marriage is, his marriage is always, basically always a problem. Um, you know, she may have or may have not known about Meta, but she certainly knew about another relationship that he would have some years later um, uh, with a woman, uh, Joan... Oh, I'm missing her name. Another much, much younger woman who is an aspiring writer that he had a sort of ongoing, ongoing mm. uh, uh, affair with and would meet up with whenever he could. Um, now, this is the thing. So we'll give. A, I want to give like a little retrospective at about the year 1944. The work that he's put out since, say, 27, 28. He's got this like 15 year period where he's written. Um, He's written stuff for Hollywood, obviously. He's written dozen, literally dozens of short stories, but he's also written um, uh, Sanctuary. He's written uh, Sound and the Fury. He's written As I Lay Dying, Light in August, Pylon, Absalom, Absalom. I feel like I'm missing one in that period. But right, he's written, he's cranked out basically a, almost a book a year um, mm. in this time period. So amazing. You know, boozing all the while, working in Hollywood all the while you know, trying to maintain a farm, et cetera, et cetera. But he's, by 1944, um, there's some dispute about this. By 1944, I think only one of his books are in print. Something I read said you could still yep. buy his books in hardcover. They were still in print in hardcover. I don't necessarily understand the publishing world at that time, but the, the legend is he was basically out of print in 1944. That's what I've always heard. That's yeah. what I've always known. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. Right. Yeah. Um, and now, 
So the question then is, well, okay, how did he sort of come back into prominence? Um, it was really the effort of a book reviewer named Malcolm Cowley, um, who always sort of loved Faulkner and had always written positively about him, who suggested the idea of putting together a book called The Portable Faulkner. Um, and this came out in 1945. Cowley wrote an introduction to it to basically explain why Faulkner was such a big deal and why you should pay attention to him. Um, and then I believe how it worked, and I don't have a copy of the Port Portable Faulkner. I think what he did in the Portable Faulkner was he arranged sections, ex um, selected excerpts of Faulkner's mm -hmm. novels That's right. so that they ran chronologically in order, not in the right. order they were written, but so that they made, they chronologically in terms of event is my understanding. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this was. This was um, sort of a reintroduction of Faulkner to the literary world, um, and it it went over. Huge, it was it was a pretty big success when it came mm -hmm. out. It drew a lot of attention back to him. It, it even made people who had reviewed his books poorly kind of reevaluate him and and put him sort of in the the proper status that he should have been. Um, and so it's this is kind of this is kind of his resurgence. I mean, other writers hadn't forgot about him, Camus and Sartre and all the people in France and the folks in South America, they all still kind of knew about him. But this was his sort of reintroduction uh, to America. Um, and this is where we get him basically on track to toward the Nobel Prize. Right. Um, yeah. So. Well, I wanted and, to read and the ahead, French man. guys, right? Like Camus and yeah. Sartre, they're, they're saying, hey, this existentialism stuff that we've been talking about, like yeah. this guy's been doing this since right. 1929. Right. Like right. this, this is a major guy. Yeah. Yeah. No, they were, they were, when he did end up going to France a little bit later, he was at an event where Camus and Sartre and um, uh, Bouvier, uh, Bouvier were there. They were like Amazing. clamoring for his attention. They were like, Amazing. you know, they were like fanning out to him. <laughs> That's amazing. Right. And he didn't really even know who they were. He would later be, um, he was, I guess he was pretty fond of Camus. Camus would end up um, putting on his Faulkner's play Requiem for a nun um, mm -hmm. in the late fifties. And it was apparently mm -hmm. pretty successful in Europe. Um, and Faulkner was, was adequately distressed when he found out that Camus had died in a car accident. Um, mm. So yeah, it's an interesting relationship. They're, they're, in my mind, they couldn't be in the literary world. They couldn't be uh, more separate. But but yep. there's really some strong some strong overlaps. Um, also, one thing worth noting is, and I don't want to totally miss the the Hemingway stuff. We're going to do a Hemingway episode eventually, so I don't want to oh, you know, awesome. spend too much time there. But um, there's this great anecdote um, about Malcolm Cowley. Um, told Faulkner this. This is from the One Matchless Time biography. Um, and this is Malcolm Cowley in a letter to Faulkner. Did I tell you about the story I heard from Sartre about Hemingway drunk in Paris insisting that Faulkner was better than he, than he was? He meaning Hemingway. Hemingway wrote me a long, rambling, lonely letter complaining that writing was a lonely trade and there was no one to talk to about it. He said, you... Faulkner has the most talent of anybody, but hard to depend on because he goes on writing after he is tired and seems as though he never threw away the worthless. I would have been happy just to have managed him, which managed him, you know, for fought for Hemingway meant like meet him in competition, basically. Um, That's very interesting. Hemingway, and yeah. in, in, I think it's an immovable feast. He's reflecting on Faulkner. 
And, mm-hmm. and he says that, you know, people think I don't like him or people mm-hmm. think I'm critical of his work. And I've always thought he's very good. Right, he, he, right. And then he says something kind of like negative about him, of course, yeah. right. To balance it out. But he definitely, he definitely yeah. tips his cap to him. Yeah. Faulkner or Hemingway's opinion from what I can gather seems to be that Faulkner was as talented or more talented than anybody else. And the only issue he had was, yeah, kind of what I just read, that Faulkner never knew when to clarify and never knew when to rein himself in. Very interesting. But, but the talent-wise was, was better than anybody. Yeah, basically. so it's sort yeah. of maybe like Faulkner missed the edit sober part. Right, right. Yeah, there is a certain, what would you call it, like a, an indulgent quality to some of uh, Faulkner's writing. Oh, yeah. That no, absolutely. See, that's yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think it's fantastic, but definitely contrary to Hemingway's mode, yeah. largely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I want to read. Oh, so since we're talking about this, I'm going to talk about a little bit of a beef that they had. So Falk, um, Faulkner had, um, I think this is when he was meeting with a class at Ole Miss, I believe. Um, this, was, this was later. This would have been in the late 40s, I believe. Um, so I'll, I'll just read this real quickly because I think this gives an interesting picture of the Faulkner-Hemingway relationship and everything. Um, in this session, um, Faulkner mentioned to one class that Hemingway quote-unquote lacked courage, although his remarks were not really meant to demean Hemingway. He was simply saying that Hemingway didn't risk failure. He's talking about Hemingway being a perfectionist, basically. Hmm. He explained that he, um, Faulkner explained that he liked Thomas Wolfe better than Hemingway because Wolfe had tried so hard and, and failed magnificently. Now, news of this remark made its way into an article published in the New York Herald Tribune, Much to his chagrin, Hemingway had been forwarded a copy while he was in Cuba. As might be expected, he found the remark about his lack of courage distressing and asked his friend Brigadier General C.T. Lanham to write to Faulkner and tell him about Hemingway's actual performance under fire during the war. Faulkner responded immediately without taking back what he had said or clarifying the context of his remarks. I'm sorry of this damn stupid thing, he said in a letter. I've believed for years that the human voice has caused all human ills, and I thought I had broken myself of talking. Maybe this will be my valedictory lesson. This painful episode for Faulkner suggests, wrongly, that Faulkner didn't admire Hemingway. He did. It was just that Hemingway had not gone out on a limb as Faulkner had, risking bad taste, overwriting, dullness. That is how he explained it to General Lanham, adding that he felt genuinely vexed that his comments had caused Hemingway discomfort. Right, so Hemingway took it real personal. <laughs> Very that anybody would say he lacked courage, right? And it's not physical courage that Faulkner was talking about. You know, it was it was it was sort uh, of literary yeah. courage. Well, that's not funny that Hemingway because Hemingway, either. yeah, I mean, well, we don't have to go too far into it, but yeah, yeah I could see. I mean, Hemingway's sort of genius, uh, his his unique contribution to my mind was bringing the quality of almost like newspaper writing. Uh, mm-hmm. elevating it and making fine literature accessible to, I suppose you would say the everyday American. He, he, he himself said, I taught the world how to speak American. Uh, right. mm. Whereas Faulkner, of course, went in a completely different direction in terms mm-hmm. of the ornateness of the writing. And the, so, yeah, yeah, I could see how they might misunderstand one another. Yeah, they were coming from very different perspectives. Yeah, yeah. So let's, on this last, let me give you a last Hemingway note. I don't know if you can hear me. We glitched there for a second. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So um, 
this is this is when um, Hemingway died in 1961, and as we all know, he committed suicide. And it just I felt like this was uh, this is maybe Faulkner Faulkner closing out his sort of relationship and opinion of of Hemingway. Um, the news of Hemingway's death on July 2nd, 1961, came as a shock to Faulkner. He guessed immediately that it was suicide. He, he was right. Hemingway had shot himself, blah, 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 blah. I shouldn't blah, 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 blah that, but we know the story there. Um, mm-hmm. Faulkner had heard all of this from Malcolm Cowley, and he sympathized. By comparison, by comparison, Faulkner had done very well. When asked at a public forum if he thought Hemingway's death was accidental, Faulkner replied, no, I don't. I think that Hemingway was too good a man to be a victim of accidents. Only the weak are victims of accidents unless a house falls on them. I think that was a deliberate pattern which he followed just as all his work was a deliberate pattern. I think that every man wants to be at least as good as what he writes. And I'm inclined to think that Ernest felt that at this time, this was the right thing in grace and dignity to do. <laughs> so, yeah. That's... And his phone was tapped by the FBI, by the way. <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah, it was, he had so. not one but two rounds of electroshock therapy yeah. here in yep. uh, Minnesota. Oh, mm-hmm. Tragic. Uh, yeah. Now this is an interesting, and and we're we're going. I mean, we're two and a half hours into this, so maybe we'll speed up some of the some of the end of this. Um, Faulkner also underwent electroshock shock therapy. I didn't know about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the boozing got so bad. They didn't know Oof. what to do with him. So um, real quick, I just want to hit this note, and then we'll talk about the last decade or so. He wins the Nobel Prize in 1949, gives one of the most st- stirring Nobel Prize speeches among the people who've given them, and it's recorded, um, and is now sort of an inter- international kind of literary celebrity. Um, by the way, he gave the Nobel Prize pretty drunk. Uh, he gave that speech pretty drunk, though it comes wow. off masterfully. Um, uh, so he's after that, he's kind of touring the world a little bit. He goes to Sweden for that. He goes to Europe to talk to some people. He goes to Japan at one point in the 50s to do like a literary conference that's like based on him. And at one point he gets so drunk, he can't show up to the honorary dinner. Um, oh, no. He's he's and, and it gets kind of ugly in the 50s honestly the nobel prize happens he makes a deliberate effort he doesn't want to undergo what he referred to as the nobel curse which is like you get the nobel prize and then you're done um which he'd seen happen to other people um but he kind of the drinking so he gets a nobel and now he doesn't have to go to hollywood anymore he doesn't have to beg beg borrow steal for money anymore um he's pretty much taken care of his books are selling well both national domestically and internationally um and the Nobel prize money itself is no is is you know it's significant he has um uh aaron you alluded to his his uh post at the university of virginia he's got that um but there's this period after the nobel prize where i counted in the biography between the nobel prize in 1949 and the and the his death in 1962 i counted 11 times where he went to the hospital or the sanitarium Oh my gosh. Um, either to dry out um, or to get, uh, he, he had injured his back several times because it, uh, not only was he drinking, he was riding horses constantly and he was falling off. It sounds like, if you read the biography, it sounds like he fell off the horse every time he got on the horse. <laughs> 
He should have got on the wagon. Yeah, he should have got, got on the wagon. Yikes! Yeah, yeah. He's, he's he's fallen. He's fallen off the horse and breaking ribs. He broke his back. You know, minor break, but still broke his Oof. back. Um, he hit his head once so hard, and this is when he was like into his fifties. He hits his head so hard that he has memory loss of falling off a horse. Um, he started when he was in Virginia. He started getting involved in the very aristocratic fox hunting community and he really oh, liked goodness. it and he wanted to improve his riding once a little bit and even though he'd been riding horses for years he went to a teacher and the teacher described him as being quote-unquote all nerve riding a horse mm-hmm. so basically mm-hmm. he was completely reckless on a horse he jumped mm-hmm. things and turn and push the horse and he just mm-hmm. didn't he had no he had no res- he, he 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 wasn't trying to not fall <laughs> right <laughs> you know what i'm saying right. so and he did this right up to the end you know right up to the end he's he's getting he's getting drunk not as bad as some of the some of the early like the lean years in the early 40s and the hollywood years but he never stopped there's never a there's never a oh faulkner faulkner got it got it together and stopped there's there's just a gradual physical decline um and not even gradual really um there's a while in after 1952, he inflames this back injury um, and they put him on second all. Oh, second good all, to grief. Yeah. So he gets kind of somewhat hooked on second all. He has a seizure in 1952, probably from drinking on second all. Um, and it's 1952. It's actually after second all where they end up giving him electroshock therapy at the West Hill Sanitarium in the Bronx. Um so yeah, it got it got dark. It you know, and it, it's not clear. He also didn't like the. F- he had a complicated relationship to the fame and the attention. Um, mm-hmm. I think like anybody who writes, they want to be acknowledged, and you know, not even I don't know if acknowledged is the right word. To, to spend all that time and effort and mental energy on doing something and have it come out and have people tell you it's good, you got to be some kind of enlightened Zen Buddhist for that to not mean something to you. You know, to the mean? level of the Nobel Prize as right. well. It does yeah. not get bigger. Yeah, uh, you, it's yeah. right, right. So I think on one level he felt you know validated and that sort of thing. Um, but on, the, uh, on another level, he didn't like having to talk to people all the time. I mean, I think he's a deep introvert. I don't think you can be a six-hour-a-day novelist and not be introverted, you know. Um, right. And, and, and so all the attention was very difficult for him. He would drink so he could kind of lubricate himself into the situations, and then he would drink if they went well. He would drink if they went poorly. Um, and... and and it was sort of a, he had no other mechanism for taking care of himself. It didn't seem like to take care of his sort of somewhat delicate psyche other than to drink um, and maybe write. So there's this weird thing, right? So he gives this Nobel prize speech in 49 mm-hmm. and this famous quote, I believe that man shall not only endure, I believe he will prevail. And it's got this kind of weird verbiage about, you know, until the last ding dong of doom and all this kind of stuff. Right. And then he writes a novel called a fable that comes out in 55 that wins the Pulitzer national book award. And it's the Christ story 
um, but set during World War One and the false armistice when these French soldiers just walked out of the trenches and kind of rebelled. They wouldn't, they wouldn't go over the wall anymore. They, they left. And the Christ figure is a French corporal who leads this revolt. And there's a scene in the novel where a French general takes this corporal in hand and leads him out to this precipice and they overlook the battlefield. And, and the French general is the Satan figure tempting Christ, right? And the, the French general goes on this long speech. And here's the very end of the speech. Oh, man will survive because he has that in him which will endure even beyond the ultimate. Worthless, tideless rock freezing slowly in the last red and heatless sunset because already the next star in the blue immensity of space will be already clamorous with the uproar of his debarkation, his puny and inexhaustible and immortal voice still talking, still planning, and there too after the last ding-dong of doom has rung and died, there will be still one sound more, his voice. Oh, I don't fear man. I do better. I respect and admire him. I am ten times prouder of that immortality which he does possess than ever he of that heavenly one of his delusion, because man and his folly will not only endure, they will prevail. So Faulkner puts his Nobel Prize speech in the mouth of the satanic figure and then shows what man enduring and prevailing will mean. And he describes this treeless, mountainless, concrete sphere that earth is transformed into basically the death star. Whoa. That's a really, I mean, to take your most affirmative, life-affirming, you know, it's Faulkner's Nobel Prize speech is quoted all the time as being this yeah. great humanist statement. And to make it that dark, that is the art of darkness. Well, that is the art of darkness. <laughs> well, it reminds me of uh, Paths Smoke. of Glory. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The Kubrick Dang. film. Hmm. Very I did much not, so. I didn't know this about I have not read a fable. Um, yeah. Wow. It's weird. It's a wild book, but it's... When I got to that passage, I like was like, whoa, 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 whoa. What the fuck is going yeah. on here? <laughs> right. That's, oh, yeah. That's, that is, that is the art of darkness right there. I mean, and yeah. And so is it that the vision, his vision changed or that's what he was saying mm. in the Nobel Prize speech all like, yeah. Right. It's, yep. that, 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 that reminds me that move of that, those two things, it's, on parallel to me to in the mis in the sort of the way it's quoted to Nietzsche's God is dead. Right. And everybody moved <laughs> off the back half of it, which is right. That, right. And we have killed him. Right. That's right. Um, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. Whew. Man. So yeah, a lot of, uh, oh, wow. There's a lot going on in Faulkner's head, man. That's uh, no doubt, dude. Geez. So yeah, he's working on that. And fable was, uh, uh, my understanding, unlike some of his other stuff that was written in v very rapidly, Fable was something that took him a long time. A lot of kind of false starts and wasn't sure what he was doing and starting over. And, 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 uh, and I think is the one 
Now, this was the one that he wrote all of the notes on the wall, wasn't it? Oh my gosh. So I've been to his house. I've been to yeah. Roanoke, his home, and I've been in his office. Um, the curator took me in and took away the, the plexiglass barricade. I went in, went through his stuff to the extent that it's respectful to do so. And in his office, he, a fable is split into chapters based on the days of the week. And those, this is the week of this false armistice, right? So there's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And on the walls, Faulkner has painted in red paint these huge columns. And at the top, he writes Monday. And it's like a plot synopsis, right? And he did the, the whole office, on, or two walls of the office, and even the back of the door. You have to close the door to see what's going on. And that is the last chapter, which is called Tomorrow. Um, and yeah, it's real crazy stuff, but because it's Faulkner, they have lacquered over the walls. So all of that is protected, right? That's his scrawling on the walls will be there as long as that house is. Right. Yeah. Oof. You wonder if he knew that's almost like, it's almost like a second book, those notes in a way, right? It's almost like a, yeah, I, I imagine there's been academic papers and things written on what you can find on those walls. Well, it's like the double. It's again, like a lot of these guys are double guys, right? So Jill Faulkner, his daughter, is, is complaining, you know, since the Nobel. And she's like, Daddy, when are you going to dedicate a book to me? Daddy, when are you going to dedicate a book to me? And one day he looked at her and said, no one remembered Shakespeare's daughter either. Oh, man. Right. Yeah, okay. that's dark. However, it's true, though. How, yeah, it's true. <laughs> I mean, However, he dedicates a fable to Jill. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. so like, it's the doubleness, right? It's like he yeah. he says, <laughs> which yeah. I was talking to, to Philip Meyer about this, and Meyer's yeah. like, well, she was kind of being a brat, though. I mean, what kind of person goes around saying, "Daddy, when are you gonna dedicate it?" Yeah, so, I mean, it's true. It's it's a great little. I mean, that's a that's a that's a Faulkner nugget right there. Yeah, that definitely is. That definitely is. So, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I don't think there's too much after kind of a fable that I want to dig into too much. I right. mean, he, he, um, 1962 comes around and, and some of the financial, it's interesting because not only does he not have to worry about finances anymore, but he, he doesn't have nearly as many burdens either. Um, Miss Maud, his mother has passed on. She died in 1960. Um, all the, all the kids are out of the house and kind of, you know, married off and that sort of thing. So he's not taking care of them so much. And, and, uh, he's set up like a William Faulkner foundation and those sorts of things. But, but, uh, and he writes one last book. I think it's a, he writes a fable and then he writes The Reavers, which is mm -hmm. a comedy. Yeah. Really? yeah. Very light. Very light. And he wins the Pulitzer for it. Yeah. 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 So he wins the Pulitzer. Yeah. There was a point where like he could do no wrong in terms of the literary world, I mean, right? Like, I swear, America, man, the way yeah. America treats its writers, right? We're late <laughs> to the party. Yeah. They, you know, this guy's books are out of print. This dude's scratching around Hollywood trying to make ends meet. And then the French are like, do you know that you have a genius that right. you haven't really recognized? He gets the Nobel. I right. think he gets it before Hemingway, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yep. And, then he, and then it's like, okay, what he produces after that is, does have the Nobel curse on it. 
But now the establishment, having been educated about his genius, feels right. guilty. And so they give every book he writes, right? right? The, the yeah. National Book Award and the Pulitzer. Like right, to try and make up for it. Yeah. It's so, it's so like who we are, man. It's, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's a strange, we have this super provincial problem with the arts in mm-hmm. this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um, we'll kind of round it out here. July 3rd, 1962, um, his back's starting to bother him and something's kind of off and he's, he's drinking and he's likely on painkillers or second all at the same time. And, and then uh, July 4th or 5th, he, he's confused and, this, and con, he's confused and incoherent. And, and despite all of his crazy binges and all the times that Malcolm Cowley or some other friend had to pick him up off the floor and help him get dried out. The one thing about Faulkner was even when he was drunk, he was coherent. He, 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 was, his, he was of such a mind that he could tell some exceedingly complicated story, even when he was, you know, blackout drunk. Um, so when he was incoherent, it was concerning to people. Um, July 5th, they check him into the sanitarium at Bahalia, which is the same place they checked him in the first time the alcohol really got really won. You know, the first time it really got one up on him, he went to Bahalia. He checks into Bahalia July 5th, 1962. Um, he's administered some painkillers and he's put to bed. Um, he wakes up at 1.30 in the morning, cries out something, falls to the floor and that's that's it that's that's how he goes out is wow. at this sanitarium heart failure um they worked for 45 minutes to try and get him back to you know bring him back and it, it was it was over um he died at uh, 65 years old um you know which isn't too you know isn't incredibly young especially for a guy who lived as hard as he lived you yeah. know um you factor that into the equation you know lifelong smoker and you know drank as much as anybody any one person drank um and yeah but you know the one good thing is he did sort of get his due we've had some we've had some subjects we've had some subjects on this show who kind of died nobody really knew who they were by the time they were you know they left they left the earth and 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 faulkner wasn't that way He, he did get he got his credit eventually from uh, absolutely, from a, you know, a, a, from a, a neat disgrace to his family as a young man to, to uh, internationally recognized, um, you know, I wanted to say celebrity, but celebrity is not the word, right? There's, there's, you know, respect on his name. A living and, legend. He was. A living and, legend. Yeah. And, and I will say, I've been to his grave there in, in Oxford, and these two marble, it's like the headstone, and these two marble slabs also, right? Mm. Uh, he, he and Estelle buried six inches apart, right? Yeah. Their graves are at least. And I went there, I cleaned off his grave, but I noticed there on his headstone, you know, those little like, like you see on planes or in hotels, those little mini bottles of liquor? Yeah. Like, you know, University of Mississippi students wander down there in the middle of the night and they uncork one for, for Bill and put, uh-huh. little, put little Jack Daniels bottles. So, I mean, he's still beloved by people who barely really get it, but they just know yeah. this is William Faulkner, man. Right. Yeah. I want to do that. That's on my list of things to do. Go Absolutely. Down there and have a little uh, moonlight cocktail on his grave. Absolutely. Faulkner yeah. would be all about it. He'd yeah, be all he about it. Yeah. Holy moly, that was a tour de force, boys. <laughs> it was. Two hours and 45 minutes. 
yeah. uh, of Faulkner. And we have more to come on yes. After Dark. I can't believe there's anything more dark than the uh, honeymoon, the suicide honeymoon. Oh. Uh, that might yeah. actually have to be the show title. It might be William Faulkner's Suicide Honeymoon. I quite like that. Ooh. What do you that's think? Pretty like, yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, I like that better than the two cents was funny, but uh, it is yeah. funny. Yeah, that that's was good. that was wild. But we're gonna do more on the uh, After Dark episode. Again, you can get it on Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Art of Dark Pod. We are at Art of Dark and on Twitter, Brad, you're growing that following one day at oh, a yeah, time. Oh yeah, I'm trying, man. man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying. I, people, people, uh, I think people like the show, and we're uh, we're gonna keep cranking them out, man. So I've got plans. I got plans for the next the rest of the year so yeah um, yeah and we are absolutely asking for you to engage tell us if you like the faulkner episode tell us who you'd like us to do we can't always do every single request but there's no end to how many of these you know potentially we want to do so we want to go and do this podcast for five years seven years however long it takes we're going to finally get through everybody Yeah. Until until we get yeah. the Nobel Prize in podcasting. Oh, that's great. Keep, it's just a matter of time. Uh, absolutely. The French the French love this podcast. Right. That's right. They uh, love it. Yeah. Like, um, are are Aaron, you listening to this? Way, way, way. Aaron, where uh, where can people find you again? Man, they can then you can go to Amazon and buy some books. I Do am it. not on yeah. social media. I'm just I'm hanging out here in Charlotte, North Carolina teaching classes and writing books. So yeah, go to Amazon if you like the stuff I say. Eh, my books are different. So yeah. anyway. And yeah. let's spell the last name for everyone. It's G W Y N Aaron Gwynn, two A's. A-A-R-O-N, Aaron Gwynn. And uh, we're going to continue to do more time after dark. There's going to be an extra story. If you're interested, support the podcast again, Patreon. It's a very low barrier to entry. Uh, We're going to use the money in better ways than, uh, you know, Netflix. (laughs) So uh, please, uh, you know, support us. We have one final question and I want to put it to our guest. Uh, Well, actually, you know what, Brad, I'll let you put it to Aaron. Oh, yes. Aaron, what would Faulkner be doing now in the foul year of our Lord 2021? He would be, he would have a sweet deal at HBO max and he would be, (laughs) he'd have this like series, this, this Byzantine, like it would be like the wire, but you know, set in Oxford and it would be like, you know, go back generations and it would be slavery and it would be Native American stuff and the Cherokee uh, in the land. And, you know, it would be about like 15 seasons long and every episode would be different lengths. There would be like four hour episodes and some hours would be 15 minutes. Yeah. Some episodes would be, yeah, it'd be totally crazy. Oh, You'd have a big, big HBO deal. Yeah. HBO, get Get Gwyn in on this. Yeah. yeah Faulkner's not alive. Hire Gwyn to do yeah. a I mean, show about Faulkner. Yeah. That'd be, a, a, that'd be great, right? It's, who's, it's, who's, it's who do you cast as Faulkner? Like Shia LaBeouf? Shia LaBeouf uh, would be a great Faulkner. He kind of would. Yeah, I know people don't like him, but that kid can act. Oh, holy moly, boys. We're coming up on three hours. Absolutely killer. And we still got some time to do on uh, After Dark. I'm Kevin Kautzman with the great uh, singular Aaron Gwynn. Aaron, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, guys. That was great. Uh, We're going to keep talking here in a minute. Um, And Brad, that was amazing, man. I just, I really admire the the work you put in there, having Aaron on to augment it and to read in the way that he does was really uh, fulfilling. And I have uh, a plan to do on the next episode. I'm going to launch us into the world of 
uh, Sarah Kane, the uh, the British playwright who her, herself had a had a suicide honeymoon, um, mm. but actually uh, followed through. So that one's that oh, one's gosh. gonna be uh, that, that cool. one's gonna be a dinger. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, and again, this is the Art of Darkness podcast. We hope you've enjoyed. If you can support the show through Patreon, please go do that. Uh, yeah, but you can also go and simply leave a review on iTunes or all oh, the rest. Tell your friends. Tell, tell your friends, yeah. Yeah, That's a big one. we, uh, we yeah. really value our listeners. And uh, all right, let's, uh, let's chat on the Art of uh, the uh, After Dark episode here now. Thanks, boys. Okay. Yeah. That was awesome. That was great, man. I'm going yeah. to practice my southern drawl on, the, on the, uh, <laughs> the After Dark episode. Maybe you don't want I don't. Yeah, see you there. <laughs> Love it. <laughs>